This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is the first of what I hope is many episodes of Talking Metal and Some Other Shit featuring James McIlroy, formerly of Cradle of Filth, currently in Summon the Walls. You asked. We have delivered. Many of you heard me ask James if he'd be keen to take our initial conversation a little bit further. Lo and behold, here we are. Rubber has hit tarmac. Throughout this conversation, we talk about heavy metal, extreme metal. We talk about some TV shows. We even discuss the ideas that underpin a lot of what's happening in the current social and political landscape. So everything's on the table. Everything is indeed on the table. So here he is, the first episode, Talking Metal and Some Other Shit with James McIlroy. How have you been otherwise? Just working? Usual stuff? Oh man, it's been all the um, album prep stuff, hasn't it? Oh, well, I really <laughs> like it. I'm not just pissing in your pocket about that. There's some, mm. there's some fantastic, almighty riffs on there, actually. Um, so are these... It's it's really fun. I I I you know you know what it's like. You're just completely blinded to how how it sounds to anyone else. So it's nice. It's nice to hear when you send it someone else to go. You know, actually, does has some value. <laughs> well, I get sent a lot of. I got to say, I get sent a lot of stuff. And what I usually do, it's it might be like you know, my, probably like everybody, I suppose. You know, I work during the week, so I have a few drinks on the weekend and put in the fire pit out the back or just sometimes sit out the back under the stars and I'll be having my Jack Daniels or my Bundy rum or whatever. And, and, um, songs will either get through to me then or they won't. I'll either go oh, next, next, next. And your stuff, I had it on and because, you know, because I kind of know you, I thought, no, I'm going to give this a bit more of a go than what I might normally do if I don't, if I don't really appreciate what's happening. But mate, in all honesty, I didn't have to do that. I actually genuinely enjoyed what I heard. And I even felt that leaving some of them as instrumental would be, would be, uh, would serve the songs better. Yeah, well, sometimes you think that, and then you put vocals on it, and you go like, "Ah, oh, actually, no, that was re- that's really cool." Mm. So, yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'm interested to see what's going to happen because I've just shipped off, you know, the keys to some some guy that the drummer knows used to play in a band. There used to be a Belgian band called uh, Oceans of Sadness, and they didn't do too badly, but you know, they were like kind of small time small time but it still made it out to the states and stuff like that to play shows so they weren't exactly you know uh didn't exactly say stay small but the old keyboard player from there for yeah just see see what he can do with it because i i me yeah i'm in the Andafal. i just sit there and clicking like notes on the midi thing yeah and, and then i go that doesn't sound right let's move that one up ah oh, now that sounds right because i know no music for it so well yeah, I'm hoping it comes out well. Oh yeah, but okay. yeah, thanks, thanks for enjoying it. I mean, it's really weird because the, the one thing that you picked out that you said you liked, I was like going, oh, I don't know if I should put that one on. Oh, that's epic. No, that that was. I, I don't think it's fair to say that was the standout track, but that was my favorite. There you go. Mm. That one. Yeah. yeah, I love the build up. I love that melancholy build up and the dissonant chord structures you put in that one. Uh, well, you know, what this sort of music, if you think too much about it, then it's not, then it's, um, yeah, too much. But yeah, anyway, that's, that's what I've been up to. So just doing all that and working and just shitting myself going, I've got to go into the studio and it's got to be all right. And then 
And then going, shit, I need to record all the guitars again now afterwards as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Have you got a release, like a release month or? You know what? I'd, I'd, I'd be happy if it comes out in spring. Okay. Because I kind of know all the, all the work involved, so I don't really think anything is going to be completely finished until December. And then there'll probably still be some other stuff to put on. And you know how it goes. They've got to go like, oh, who's going to mix this? Yeah, yeah. Well, are, are you going to are you going to shop it around to the labels like Osmos and Nuclear Blast? See, see, this this is where my imposter syndrome comes in a bit because I like go like, well, do I do that? Does anyone care? You know, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> Which is sure. really, yeah, I think it's sure. Well. I'll have to see. I mean, I, I think I think it comes down to if you don't have a pro, have a product, if you just have some shitty demos, then I don't think anyone will listen. If you have a finished product, then people will actually sit down and go, "Well, we don't have to give these guys any money. We just have to distribute it." Hmm. It's more of a known thing what they're getting as opposed to, I think you know, before you just go like, "Here, here's his load of money going to the studio," and then the band comes back with something. And sometimes it's genius, but sometimes you go. I bet there's I bet there's record label execs sitting there going, "What the fuck were they thinking? Like seriously, what the fuck were they actually thinking when they when they did all of this and then came and go, this is brilliant.' It, and look at it, go, this is unsellable dog shit, which I'm sure has happened to quite a few bands, but no one tells them and they release it. And then it goes all goes to um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it all goes wrong. Yeah, well, I've been talking to some some people lately who've, who've similar situation to you. So we're in a band that had a degree of prominence and great musicians. And I think the deals that they're being offered by Atomic Fire or Nuclear Blast, they're akin to distribution deals. But what it does do, it gets you on the radar. It just means that the average punter out there in the Midwest of the USA or in Melbourne and Australia, yeah. wherever it might be, develop some awareness. Yeah, I think that's the only way to do it these days. I don't think you can just go off and just say, "Look, here we are. Give us some money. We'll record a record for you." I feel like that's that that died a while ago. Yeah, because yeah. You know, you're not making any money for record sales, and even bands like huge advances to go into the studio and do like you know stuff like record with full orchestras, unlimited budget. That that's kind of gone. So you need to have something, and they look at it and go, "Can we sell this? Yes or no?" And then. If they say yes, then yeah, they'll put some effort into it. Hopefully, so yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll I'm see. excited. I mean, even even if no one, if, even if not many people listen to this, I'll still have made it, and that's kind of half the point most of the time, isn't it? Just putting no, something. I agree on. totally with you on that one, James. It's really important to establish legacy because that's actually the main reason for doing things. And people, I, I wish people understood that that if you got the music in you, or you got a book in you, or whatever it might be, do it anyway, because at some point in time later on, people might pick up on it and you do it for yourself first and foremost. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm just going to write what I like. I'm not really going to care if anyone else likes it because that's beside the point. If I cared if anyone else liked it, I don't know. There's there's plenty of ways you can go, like the, the whole middle of the road, American radio rock kind of stuff where you pretend that you're a little bit pissed off, but not too pissed off because otherwise you get the parental advisory sticker and you sing about yeah. things which are... <laughs> not quite G, and uh, you know they're kind of like that. There's country music with slightly more rough guitars, really, isn't it? it? You're right, and I've thought that for a long time with a lot of that stuff, like uh, 
what's that? It's not over. Who sings that? I can't remember now, but uh, Creed, I, I was, well, you, you might be happy to know then that Creed are making a comeback. So there you go, the king of that sort oh, of thing. That, that's just amazing. I remember Creed. This is listening to the stuff. It was so bland in the middle of the road. And all is just like, you know, what was it? The um, tapping up the whole Christian Midwest going like, oh, a massive Chris, Christian band. Well, meanwhile, Scott Stapp's basically, you know, doing tons of coke and getting his nuts yeah. sucked off backstage by all kinds of stuff. And being, the complete, being the complete opposite of what he claimed to be. Yeah. So... But the fact that they're getting back together is like, oh man. And at the same time, as what's the other terrible band, which I'm sure people tell me is not terrible, but I did think Godsmack, that one. Oh, yeah. Another <laughs> <laughs> one of those bands which is just like they, they managed to take grunge and strip away everything that was good about it and mm. turned it into something just completely bland, like a Twinkie. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I oh, know. And and what was more shocking was that I used to go back in the turn of the century when Godsmack and Creed and stuff when they were coming of age, if you like, and they were developing their huge audiences that they eventually obtained. I'd go into rehearsal studios with blokes I hadn't met to join bands or just jam or whatever, and they'd be wearing T-shirts. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, what do you, what do you, I was genuinely curious. What do you find interesting about these bands? And I think deep down, maybe not deep down, maybe the shallow aspect of it, they felt that by wearing the T-shirts and maybe listening to these bands that they might incorporate some of the the magical juju that these bands might have. When I say magical juju, all of the studio trickery and the production and the massive marketing budget that's behind them because they might have obtained a little bit of that magic if you like, and applied it to their own music, and they could have become as they could then become as big as these Godsmacks and Daughtry. That's the band I was thinking of before, and Creed. And it's like it doesn't. Of course, it doesn't work like that. You can't just sort of develop an interest in a band and think, well, I'm going to sort of plug into the way that they do things, and hopefully, it happens for me. You've got to be you. You've got to be the individual yeah. that you are. Exactly. I mean, they started those bands out, and they were them. I mean, I I don't I don't like it that much I don't find it's got much much worth to it personally but that's just me there's plenty of people that like it and that's you know, good for you if you like it but they didn't start out going well they weren't copying anyone they just did something and it just happened to be very radio friendly and kind of bland mm-hmm. in my opinion which means you know it's easier to sell to a load of people because you know you get what do you, what do you want? Do you want your kids to listen to um I don't know the the mysterious Dom Satanas from oh, I probably said that wrong and I'm gonna get a flame oh, for that guy. Good actually. <laughs> no black metal. Um or do you want to listen them to listen to Creed? It's kind of yeah. So you know, one album a parent's gonna buy from Walmart, the other one kids gonna come home with and basically just end up with um their parents getting them exercised. Yeah, it's uh, it's an adjacent point, but I tried to uh, feel free to, as always, feel free to disagree or otherwise with me here. But the other, not not too long ago, I'd, the Game of Thrones things went right over the top of my head. So I thought, you know what? Before I go to bed each night, I'm going to try and get through an episode and just see how I go. So I planned it so as I could get to bed a bit an hour earlier just to try to get through an episode. Mate, I reckon I got through about two and a half episodes before I had to turn it off. I don't get it. It does not get through to me at all. That happened to you? No, no, because I, I I'm pretty compulsive when I start watching things. I at least have to finish the season unless it's utterly, utterly terrible. 
but even bad things I can sit through, just movies, the whole lot. So even if, even if halfway through I'm going, this is terrible, I still need to know kind of how it ends. So I did start watching it, and then it got to got to a stage where um, I think some lots of those series they they spend about half a series setting everything up, and then maybe the last half or last third things start happening, and that. So it's um yeah, I think you need to invest in it, and I kind of did invest in it, and then it was okay until the last couple of parts, which kind of just kind of switched off and went. They just lost it. It's no longer fun to watch. No, no. I had been watching yeah. Sopranos lately because I missed that the first time. Or all, but you don't know it's been around twenty five years or twenty years or whatever. But I am enjoying that. I've got to say, I still haven't watched that at all. I just completely missed out on that completely at the time, and I just haven't got around to it. Yeah, seems like a decent show. Um, I liked Sons of Anarchy. I, I got through all of that. There's a few others that are out there. I, but I, get, I gave up on that as well after a while because it just got. Oh, the last few seasons were terrible. The first two, I thought, were I'm not going to say groundbreaking, but they were they were new for what they were. And, and but the last, uh, yeah, then it just got bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bike, you probably know a bit. Bikies are everywhere in Australia, so yeah. It was there was a couple of movies that were coming around coming out Australian movies that were coming out at around the same time uh, as well because there's uh, there's a, a an infamous uh, incident that happened at the Viking Tavern in Milpera in Sydney between the rebels and the banditos. They basically had a shoot shoot them up, but they killed a couple of a couple of innocent bystanders, if you like. So apart from their regular notoriety, they've also got that to their name. Uh, the the bikies. So we have a bit of a thing here, and there's a uh, I don't know whether it might have made Belgium or the UK, but Underbelly. Have, have you heard of the series Underbelly before? No. Check that out if you really like the crim stuff, because that's an Australian series, and it talks about the Australian criminal underground. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty violent stuff, pretty intricate sort of stuff. But uh, you know, who's got the time for watching series these days? Let's face it. <laughs> Okay, occasionally it depends depends what it is, what I find and stuff like that. But I think it um it's generally now winter's coming. Well, summer for you guys, but you know, winter over here. There's there's more time to just not be outside doing stuff because it's cold. So that kind of feeds into watching more series, doing more stuff like that. And gen- generally trying to be antisocial. Yeah. Does it get below is it snow where you are? Sorry, I wouldn't have a clue. So is it does it get like um, that? No, we don't get that. Occasionally, if you're lucky, it snows, and then I get stuck, stuck everywhere. You can't go anywhere. So then all the all the Nordic countries laugh at the rest, the rest of Europe having a little bit of snow and not being able to cope with it. So you know, but no, it doesn't really snow much here anymore. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, well, we're only getting thirty degree days, so it's just it's spring for us as you as you can appreciate. But it's already today. Today I think is going to be a bit cooler. But as soon as we hit the thirty degree days, mate, that's when the air conditioning comes on, and that's kind of like the opposite. That's when I do I do get outside. I swim every day, so I get outside and do that, and I water the garden because you've got to, otherwise everything dies. But uh, that's you know for the same reasons, mate. You got to stay inside. That's when I might start binging on something if I'm so inclined. But it's generally speaking when I will start diving into some books so i've got about yeah. 10 books on the go at kindle at any one time it's just whether or not i feel like sort of to your point around suffering through uh, suffering through series i'll do that with yeah. books too but occasionally because i've got kindle unlimited 
you can download, you, you pay your subscription, you download all of these books, but sometimes there's no payoff with them and you, you're sort of 500 pages into a 700-page book and you're like, when is this thing going to start resolving and making sense? And it doesn't, so I have to go to Wikipedia or somewhere like that and spoil the ending and turns out there's no result, no payoff and I'm like, well, I'm not sticking through this. No point today is that it's like, it's like a concept album that doesn't wrap itself up. Yes. Yeah, there's a few of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you compare, are you like me? You think The Wall and Seventh Son, they're about it, and you sort of judge all other concept albums against those two? No. I judge everything against um, Operation Mindcrime. Oh, wow. Speci- specifically the live version. Not so much the studio version, but it's the live version that does it for me because it got recorded with this really weird kind of, I think, hall reverb or something on it which is absolutely odd. I've never really heard it on a different li- on any other live recordings, but it's got a really odd sound to it, which is almost like haunting. And it just really makes that whole experience. But yeah, I, I judge everything against that, really. Hmm. Seven Sun. You're right. Yeah, Seven Sun, that's all right as well. But for me, it's definitely that one Queensryche album. That's, that's, for me, that's like probably the pinnacle of concept albums. Strangely. Yeah, I, I tend to be more of a Chris DeGamo guy, so I go for Empire, funnily enough. You know, there's that there's that thing with fans, not older fans like us, tend to sort of go for one of those two. Not always, but I, I definitely lean into his guitar playing a lot more than I do into the concept and Jeff's vocal, I've got to be honest. I've always been the, the musician's fan, as people know. But um, was was The Wall, was that one of your first? Chris DeGamo was excellent on, on live crime and stuff like that. He was like, you know... I thought he was the best thing in Queensryche. And then he left and became a pilot. And he tried coming back and then it just didn't work out. Which I think happens to a lot of bands where you know you get people that were there, you go like, oh, they're, they're integral to the band. They come back and it just doesn't work for some for some unknown reason. His time was just done, I think. And he when, when um, I say or you, Chris wrote most of opera, um, Empire. So that's when when I talk about that, that's what I mean by that. And I think it was my introduction to Queen Shrike as well, being 1991, 92, or whatever it was. Um, uh, well, that was 1990, but that's when I picked up on the album was around 92. So it's hard to, it's a bit like the Queen thing or the Pink Floyd thing. It's hard to sort of go back and say another album's your favourite in the Pantheon because they're all in that era in particular from Queen Shrike, they're all yeah. very good. Yeah, they did, they did have a good run for a while and then it's just... I think, I don't know, quality control has kind of lost it a little bit and you had like maybe one, two really good songs on an album then a couple, then a load where you went like, meh, not into this. Yeah. Talking of which, there's the whole Portnoy back in Dream Theater thing, so I'm interested in that. Yeah, I saw that. I didn't know it's... Yeah. Do you get back it's together with an ex-girlfriend you used to love, though? You know, I mean, do you do that? Yeah. Or do you find new lover somewhere else? You know, expand your horizons and do stuff. Look, who knows if it's financial? I mean, I won't even speculate on that. But but I thought Mike Mangini, because he was in Annihilator too, I thought he yeah. was an outstanding drummer, I've got to be frank, and I thought he was a great fit for those guys. But clearly they, had, they feel like they've got some unfinished business on whatever level, so the proof will be when the next recording comes out, whatever that sounds like. Yeah, I'm, kind of, I'm actually kind of hoping that Portnoy ends up, I don't know, keeping things a bit more in check. 
I think he was always part, I, I, I get the feeling he was always part of like, you know, the writing process. I, I never read that many interviews really, but he wasn't just there as a musician to fill, fill a kind of role. So I'm kind of hoping that maybe with that, you might get, because I used to love Dream Theater and then they just got really boring for me. It's like just too much, I know, um, put five virtuosos in a room and then, you know, see what happens. Doesn't always work out the way you want it to. Which is no, kind of a shame. So. I agree. I'm just thinking up what the album is that I liked of this. Sorry, you go. So, I mean, my, my favourite stuff is still really the early stuff because, you know, <laughs> you're obviously have to say that. I really like the, um, oh, the first album that that, that does a break from complete images and words and uh, away. Images and words. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Falling to Infinity I liked as well. And then after that, I think there's, there's people, people really like scenes from memory, but I wasn't that into it. And it kind of went for me. Like they stopped being about songs and more about technicality for a while is kind of feeling I got like, what do you do when you dream fit? Do you try and outdo yourself or that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, when they lost, when, when uh, Jordan's a fantastic player and a lovely guy, I've got to say Jordan Rudess, if you ever meet him, awesome fella. Um, but he's so intelligent that I think that the, he, I feel like when he joined, the other guys were like, well, it's game on now. We've got someone who's really on top of it. And not that Derek wasn't at all, but I feel like when he came in, they became the mathematician. They became mathematicians as opposed to musicians. That could well be. That could kind of just happen as if it's one upmanship. It's like, I mean, they're all insanely talented people. Yeah, but right. I'm with you. I think images and words was was there again. That's when you, when you first get into them, you're like, okay, that's yeah. that's the sound right there. And then they had that huge that that enormous song off the album, whose name God, I'm going drawing on my memory here, so I'm having to look that's up. Pull me under, or is pull it Metropolis? Under. Yeah, pull me under. Yeah, the beginning for Metropolis. That 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 one. That's 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 an amazing intro. Yeah. But did, were you were you of the view that like so you hear a song like Pull Me Under and you're like oh my god it's here this is the sound that I've been wanting a band to come out with for years and it's like they basically never really did a song like that again and and uh, you think, what's going on I know they'd had some heavier stuff but you know what I mean grooving a mo- grooving monster of a song like that one that's that's a hard one um, I don't think I have. I- I don't think I ever really saw it as like, oh, I need to make more songs like this. Because, you know, if 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 a band gets stuck making the same song over and over again, that's like a death knell as well. So it's like, it's, on one hand, it's kind of nice that they've only done one kind of like that. And then everything else is kind of a little bit different because it keep, keeps things interesting. So I'm not so much saying that um, it's like the one song that made that band. But I think it was more the combination of people at the time and, you know, probably where they were in their lives and and what they did, what they wrote at that point. Because it's fairly, it's a nice cohesive album. You can listen to it from start to finish, get through the whole thing. And, you know, it's it's, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But some of, but that's going back to just with, um, I don't, I haven't really heard that many albums recently where I can just listen, listen to it from start to finish. I couldn't do that with falling into infinity, I've found. And it's not that I don't have an attention span. I just thought it was way too dynamic. The highs were too high and the lows are too low. 
the gaps between them weren't um, as consistent as what I would like them to be. And I went back and listened to it the other day, actually, and I was, you know, having a nap and I was lying down and I often put on music and I'll do that and I'll just see if it, it's not so much, can you keep me awake? Let's play a game. It's more how engaging is this as I'm drifting off into that in-between space between being awake and being asleep. And it still didn't grab me, I've got to be honest. I don't know. I think I think I played the Trail of Tears to Death, that that epic song at the end. I think one that's 12 minutes long or something like that. Mm. I love that. And then I think the the change of seasons EP as well. I thought that, that was that was really cool. Mm. That was like a 20-minute song, wasn't it? Oh, I think so. Let's have a look. I'll check it out. Yeah. Again, just so the peanut gallery didn't go, you guys aren't real dream theatre fans. I am, and you don't know anything. Uh, let me see. Lines in the Sand is 12 minutes long and trial of, trial, of, trial of Tears. I used to call it Trail of Tears. So there you go. Trial of Tears, 1306. John Muir. Oh, well, I got, well, I got the name wrong as well. So, you know, I'll, well, I'm forever cast down as, yeah. you know, just... The prog rock elites have cast you out. You are not prog metal elite. And how dare you defile our favorite band? I think I was, I think I was never, I was never in the, in the fan in the club anyway to start off. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got, I got the wall before I got any of this stuff. So the wall for me is, um, I remember going down when it was a young fella going to a boarding school. Mates lived everywhere. So I remember going down to the south coast of New South Wales on a bus and just listening to that thing front to back and then back to front again or what have you. And and it just it was just that right moment in time. I was reading a bass player magazine that had articles about Steve Harris in it and I was I was listening to Pink Floyd. And I remember that just had a, such a huge impact on my 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 psyche because when I got down there to Beager, it was a town called Beager, and uh I remember um going into the record store and just looking at the Pink Floyd in the state and the Iron Maiden stuff, not that I had the money to buy it or anything like that, but it became very apparent that I'd sort of been almost set in my ways from that point that these were going to be two very important bands to my listening psyche. But the, the thing about The Wall is it just, um, you know, it had the lyrics as well that made you, made you think because you could understand them all as well, but just that dynamic that it had between light and dark and the very dark and then the very light as well and, Roger Waters, you know, for all of his um, cranky old manness these days, I think he's a genius, I've got to say. Yeah, there's a lot of lunacy involved with him these days. It's um, it's interesting to watch, but <sighs> he, he, he doesn't do himself any favours, does he? No, he's a, he's a fool these days, let's face it. He's lost it, and he's lost his ability to – it's not about self-censorship. It's about being appropriate in public, I think, and he's lost the ability to do that. So he's literally the old man yells at, crap, at the cloud meme at the moment from The Simpsons. Pretty much. You know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, he, what his wife or what his people around him are encouraging in one way or another around, but I don't. I, the, the interesting thing is, is that no matter how bad he gets these days – in my view, it doesn't affect his legacy. Yeah. But do you think that's the thing? Like, yeah, do, do you think no matter if, if you do truly like cross a line that it can affect the legacy? Because I was thinking about this the other day. Oh, well, if you okay, so there, there's two parts to that. The first part of it, if you, if you go that bloke from the Lost Prophets, it's all done, it's all over. Like even the, yeah. those poor bastards in Lost Prophets, the guys who had nothing to do with his bloody awful crimes 
they I don't even think they've started over again. It could be wrong, um, but I'm not aware. But so there's that aspect of it. So yeah, definitely you can go, well, when I say way too far, there's things that you just that are so taboo that they just kill everything. But look, I think with Roger, you know, we live in a democracy, and I think that's a wonderful thing. I tend to be a bit of a free speech absolutist. It's not that I agree with all of these extreme views at all. Of course I don't, but I think we need to live in a society where sunlight kills bacteria. So if you've got these views, put them out to the public and, and have them tested. I, I can't agree with censorship on basically almost any level at all. And that's using the under under the iron rod of com, common sense, I say that. But in terms of legacy, no, I'd I don't think look, he's he he speaks so I, I really enjoyed listening to him on Joe Rogan's show, I've got to say, because it was probably the first time I felt that he was uh, he was in a position where he had a big enough audience and he maybe he realized that and he could be articulate and express his views in a way that they were coherent. I don't even agree with them, but they were coherent. A lot of the time he's up on stage and he's wearing those fake Nazi outfits and shit, and it's ridiculous. It's a parody of a parody. So I don't think he's in any danger because he grew up in the British grammar school system and so a lot of it is still informed with an element of critical thinking, a strong element of critical thinking. So I don't think he'll ever take it too far. But in general, I think it just depends on how on how um, much of a – like how did it impact culture, for example? Like if you've got a legacy, how much of it is entwined with culture? And the smart ones – like, I don't like Bon Jovi at all, as you can appreciate, but he seems to have been smart enough just to sort of stand back and let everybody have an opinion and do their thing about his very ordinary and middle-of-the-road music. And in that way, do I, do I think his legacy, because he hasn't attracted any controversy or attention outside of his music, do I think it will be, will, will his music stand the test of time and be played in 100 years' time? Maybe not. Do I think Rogers will be? Now, not for the reasons that I've just outlined, but I think, yeah, in 100 years' time, people will appreciate Pink Floyd and they'll they'll go there, whereas I think Bon Jovi is just music that's played by played in shopping centres and strip clubs, basically, at the moment. <laughs> the two S's. <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't have picked two things further apart, could you? Like <laughs> a shopping centre and, and the strip joint. Because because I think I think my my most recent travails to both I think that's what I heard so I definitely heard <laughs> you hear you hear that shit that sounds like vague and new metal in some of these trip clubs now I'm only saying that you know it's years ago so before anybody thinks that you know you're a man with a family what are you doing going to a strip club you know we're all we're blokes and you know people sort of drag you places on bucks nights or whatever it might be but last time I was in a strip club they were playing it sounded like I think it's a band called Dope it's a new metal band. I don't know whether it was that band, but when I heard it, I was like, that's what I think that was. It was like this electronic new metal shit. And they seemed to dance and rock around to that stuff. <laughs> new metal was a weird one because at the time, I think it's just it was just pretty much, oh my God, this is, well, a lot of people that I hung out, hung out with, kind of, oh, this is crap and stuff like that. And to be fair, a lot of it was absolutely awful after a while. Because I think the same thing is like with any genre happened. You got a couple of bands that did some cool stuff. Like I'm not going to lie, I I liked Corn when they first came out. Then kind of didn't like them for a while because I just wasn't into what they were doing. Right. Yeah. And then they said they suddenly got really good at writing songs again, and then I got back into them. But then there's other bands which were just absolutely just you know, awful. They're beyond awful. 
Well, the genre has survived intact. It's morphed into other things, and the biggest bands always break out anyway. So the only two that I know of are Corn and Limp Bizkit. Outside of that, you could you'd have to you could burn me with a soldering iron, and I could barely tell you what a band was called. <laughs> I mean, all, all genres do that, don't they? you? Get like a couple of breakout bands, and everyone decides they're going to do the same thing after that because obviously, you know, doing the same thing as everybody else is going to get you a ton of success. If you, if you copy someone else, which goes back to that, you can't copy a band. And all the all the record labels at the time would go like, "Oh yeah, this this stuff selling. Let's let's put any old band's album out, just promote it." And it doesn't really matter if they're good or not, as long as they look the part. And this happens with every genre, I think. You get that initial. Is this some kind of life cycle? Where you get um, you get some pioneers who do something new, but never really actually make any money off it because they were the first people and no one really understood what they were doing. Then you get like a band that sees like, oh, this is really cool, but they're still themselves, like a kind of a second wave. And then that just suddenly gets absolutely massive with a couple of other, other bands at the same time. And then that leads to that bit afterwards where everyone kind of scrambles to... I know, like seagulls trying to go for the last last couple of chips on the beach, and it's fighting about it. And you get a massive thing, and then everyone just goes like, "Oh, this is so saturated. I'm really bored of it now." And then the whole thing implodes. Yeah, you spot and on. Twenty, yeah. 20 yeah. years later, you come back to. Yeah, you're not you're not wrong, and I I remember uh, remember when the new metal thing ended. Then it was like, "Oh, what's going to come along next?" This is all the internet was. That's just metal, wasn't it? Well, well, even even I'm talking about stuff that impacts like that gets played in the shopping centres and stuff. Like you walk around uh, like the city or whatever, and you see people wearing the t-shirts. And remember, it was the Jet thing, the Jet and the Vines, and that you know the Hives, the the bands. Remember though, they came along afterwards, the Garage Rock thing. I think I kind of avoided that because it just wasn't my <laughs> thing at all. But I think I know what you mean. Yeah, every every single band had to have the in front of it. Yeah. There was the kind of terrible because I, I really like like having the in front of a band name for quite a while, but then you know that kind of killed it because they took all the cool names, they put the in front of it and left no none for anyone else. Yes, you're not wrong. Yeah, I, I remember being in a band trying to trying to come up with a band name at the time, and the one thing that we agreed was, and it was just because it was a reflection of what we thought. Going back to your original comment about record companies and throwing a bunch of money at you to to record something, we had to have a the in front of it. So I think we were called the Sword, and there was already a band. I didn't know there was already a band called the Sword around, but we called ourselves the Sword or the Swords or something like that. And we thought, well, well, that'll that'll be a name that at least we don't have to change. You know, we don't have to go through that process thinking that was the most important thing we had to consider. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think after um, the garage rock thing, the internet kicked in and it was it was just what you the myspace was really myspace and it all fragmented and shattered apart and then to your point about metalcore started to it been around for a few years by then but started to rise and then deathcore came along and now now it's just the last 15 years it's just been get into whatever the hell you want there's a market there i know talking talking about metalcore i don't know it's called just metalcore they, i think they are aren't they who's that sorry kill switch engage because I remember hearing their first album, some 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 guy that I that I knew was like a DJ at like a London clubs, and he had this advanced CD, and we were sitting there just you now having a drink until the early early hours of the morning. He said, "You need to listen to this," so we put it on and we played it like five times straight, and I missed the flight because of it. Oh, really? 
I remember that, that album being genius. That first Kill Switch album was like, oh man, this is really, really good. So at that time, I think you could kind of see it was just going to explode, like for all that kind of stuff. So it was so good, what, what they did. I, I remember, I, I didn't listen to the album, and I still haven't, to be honest with you. I've, I don't think I've even had an opportunity to interview one of those guys, but... Uh, I did see them when they played alongside of Anthrax, when Joey Vera was playing in Anthrax in 2003 or four, I think it was, and they made an impression back then. They, they seemed like a great band. I don't know whether I thought they were as revolutionary, though, but then the media, I tended to avoid bands that the media said, remember, remember the thing about Killswitch Engage was the band that killed new metal. Here they are. And uh, that was what the media and what the Roadrunner or whoever they were on was was touting oh, at the yeah. time. And I remember, and that that actually put me off, and not because I I didn't want new metal to die or what have you. I just thought this, it's just a media. At that point, you could see what was going on. You could see the game, the setup that was happening. So I just avoided it and went back to listening to whatever it was. No, I think that when the that first album came out, it was it's just like I don't, don't, we didn't have a name for it. We just thought, oh, this this has all the cool stuff, all the Swedish stuff that we're listening to, and it's got like you now some big dose of melody. But it's really well blended together. I just remember going, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I tended to – how's the best way of framing this? I'm an in-flames absolutist. So unless a band can sort of match what Jesper was doing on the, on those albums there, and I, and I did listen to enough of them to, to hear that they were inspired by that sound and, you know, At The Gates and Carcass. Yeah. Um, I could hear that they were inspired by that stuff, but I thought – my thinking has always been this – and. It's changed a little bit, but if something reminded me too much of something else, why would I bother listening to that? I'll just go back and listen to the source. So if you're an inflames absolutist, what's your take on the halo effect then? Oh, the good, more, I've interviewed oh, I've interviewed most of the band members. Yeah. You're right. Is it more yeah. inflames than inflames is? Oh, these days, no doubt, no no question um, about that at all. And and I've spoken to Bjorn about this too because Anders is a bit cagey about things. Um, but Bjorn, you, I feel like you can have more of a longer conversation. You know, Bjorn is still, is still in inflames, obviously. So you've got to get your Swens and your Bjorns uh, careful, I think, when you're talking about the Swedes, you know. <laughs> but, um, but Bjorn... Um, Bjorn will at least allow you to talk to him about the change in the band's sound. Anders won't. So that's my point. So Anders will say, we we control. I think his comment to me was when I tried to talk to him about it, because we control this shit, nobody else, and shut it down. Whereas Bjorn's like, yeah, but members come and go, and we're the ones that are in the band, and we're not writing. And I believe him. I actually believe him. He's one of the few that I would believe on face value when he says that they haven't changed their sound for commercial reasons. They probably just got bored doing it. And the other thing is, you've got to keep in mind too, Jesper exited around 2008 or nine, And Jesper was the driving force musically in the band. He had been, you can you can tell, because as soon as he stepped out, the, cha- the, the sound changed. Now, that's what happened in my view, was that with Jesper no longer there, Bjorn then became the chief songwriter. That's just how Bjorn writes, and he's more in tune with what's going on in the modern world. And I think that, I think that summarises it. That's but that's definitely that's definitely does sound to me like that would be the case. And you know, the thing with Inflames is I'm not saying the bad or anything at all because I'll just quite happily listen to them. I thought um the last stuff they put out, I did, don't know, in a cheeky way, I kind of thought it was it, it sounded a bit like a reaction to the halo effect existing because mm. it was 
punchy and fast again and all that, all that kind of stuff. But I don't mind the melodic stuff either. I mean, I think it takes balls as a band to actually be experimental and move away from a sound and do it well. Even if you might, might have a couple of misses here and there, but then still, you know, still sound like yourself. Which I think in Inflames' case has a lot to do with Anders' voice. It's just you, so instantly recognizable, almost most, most singers are, but in his case. And yeah, so to keep a band going that long and still, you know, do interesting things, even if old old fans don't agree with them, you might find like that there's new people that do. And that's kind of how you keep a band fresh, really, isn't it? Yeah, agreed. And look, this their success is it, it, nobody can question the you can whatever the reasons are for their success. Nobody can question that they're not successful. So, for example, they played. Excuse me. Um, when they played in Mexico, they played before Deep Purple to an arena that holds somewhere in the vicinity of. I got. I think I said to to Bjorn, or, or I think I said to Bjorn, it was a hundred thousand seat arena. I think it was something. It's actually something like hundred and forty thousand. Now I don't know if it was full or what have you when when In Flames went on, but. Deep Purple and these management types, they don't bring on bands and aren't going to attract or entertain an audience. They just don't do it. You know that. Okay, so they're whatever it is that they're doing, it is working. They've got a fan base. Whether or not it's a bit like the cradle thing where there's blokes like me who who listen to the older stuff and then sort of went away and they've got and we'll, if there's still interest there, we'll go along and watch the band or what have you. But I don't know, mate. They, they seem to have two distinct, fairly distinct uh, divisions in their career and maybe they've got two sets of fans and some of the older fans like me will turn up and hope to hear something of Jester, but who knows? I, I don't know. I haven't, I've got to be honest, man, I haven't seen them live. Um, and I don't know whether I would these days. I'd probably far more likely, well, I am seeing the halo effect. They're coming down here soon. So um, I, the Jester, uh, Jesper isn't playing with them. So, I'll still try and catch up with the guys. Not that I don't know them or anything like that, but it's just nice to say, hey, great, great work, guys. You know, I like what you're doing here. It's sounding a bit in flamesy, and I think that's a really cool thing, keeping that that older strain of the yeah. band alive. See, one of my favorite, favorite um memories of in flames is someone gave me uh Oracle, uh, lent it to me as a CD, and I just didn't get it back for like ages because it's put it in start listening to it and that was kind of it it was like oh this is really really cool and that's my first actual you know being exposed to in flames and I just really like the fact that it was so I know it's almost progressive in places am I right yeah Maybe. absolutely almost some Spanish flamenco style flourishes as well courtesy it had, it had this whole different thing to it but it just wasn't just one thing that had thrown some extra stuff some extra sauce into it and it was, it was really really cool I th the other thing too I find is well, for, for my listening tastes, okay, um, they're the only band that could rival Iron Maiden, nowhere near the scale, of course, but they had four or five absolute bangers one after the other. So um, Jester, Race, Horacle, Colony, and then Clayman, okay? So you have four. You got four there in a row where all of the songs are good. And they're the only other band outside of Iron Maiden that I feel did that. And after that, it sort of shifted a lot. It's uh, Soundtrack to Your Escape, that album, um, was when things really changed. But really, those four albums there, they just rolled gold. And and, it, and it, 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 like we talked about this a little bit, I say Slayer have got three albums, you know, from Rain and Blood to Seasons and 
Megadeth, well, we'll see how many, I don't know, on reflection, they're a bit more patchy. Anthrax, I don't, I'm not even really that sure about Metallica. We've got two or three or four, depending on your perspective on things. But I think it was more noteworthy when In Flames did it because it was much further along. It was 20 years after Kill 'em All came out, and I was still capable of doing that. And that's, um, that was when I still think albums are important, but bands who can write very strong albums, man, especially if you can write albums with between 10 and 15 songs on them and you can do do it four or five times in a row like that, man, there's something very special happening with the band. Yeah, that's true. Because that, that, that's quite a long time to keep it up as well and still actually have new ideas. Yeah. Well, maybe they just burnt out. I don't know. It's they, Jesper, this is public knowledge. Everybody knows this, but Jesper's had a lot of issues with alcohol over the years. He's When I spoke to him, it's, he seemed really well, but... He's definitely under the he, – he can't travel, for example. He can't come to a place like Australia. It's far too long for him to be away from maybe support networks or whatever it might be. But it's a real shame. I would, I would love to have – love to be, enter into an alternative universe where you can hear Jesper be fully in control and hear what his music would sound like because he's doing great work with Syrah and the Halo Effect. But as I say, mate, in Flames, they were just special. Yeah. But there's oh. – there's quite a few bands, bands that, that, that do that one special thing and have that little goal and area. You go, this is really good. But then, I don't know. It's it's, it's really hard to keep it up an entire career, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah, it's do it. Actually, it's probably impossible. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And there's a, there's a couple of reasons why why that's the case. It's a lot of bands are run out of. It's it's like the Metallica thing. Now, this might be controversial. Here we go. Okay. When see, Dave's, in there, in there somewhere. Yeah, well, got to do it. Got to be done. Look, see, I think Metallica started sounding shit when they ran out of Dave Mustaine's ideas. Okay, now it's not as ridiculous as what it sounds. Okay, I know the all the peanut gallery are going, "How dare you defile my metal heroes?" You know, but look, there's Dave Mustaine's been. He's gone on record as saying that some of his riffs are on Master of Puppets. Okay, now. And justice for all, forget about the the production and the no bass thing or whatever. The songs are there. The songs are great. They're labyrinthine. They're they're enormous. But that that might have been those guys or James or Lars and Kirk. I'm not saying that they based everything on Dave. I'm not saying they're far from that. I'm just saying that Dave Mustaine was such a powerhouse back in those days that his ideas were so enormous that they could power two bands effectively in a way. So of course Megadeth, but. His songs were were certainly credited up into the first two albums. So it's not a stretch to believe him and say that, especially as it Lepper Messiah. To me, Lepper Messiah just sounds like a Dave, you know, dun, 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 dun. that's just got Dave Mustaine written all over it. So if that's the song, I'd believe it. Um, but you got to think there's that comp- the competitive element of it too. And, and Metallica was still intact. So yeah, it's. Uh, when when bands bands have to be inspired is the point. There you go. Bands have to be inspired, and when they lose that inspiration, it just becomes a job. And I've picked on Slayer a little bit, but only because I think those three albums from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety were so nineteen eighty six to nineteen ninety were so fantastic that I haven't really been able to listen to their stuff afterwards as an adult fan. I, I can't really listen to anything from um, what's the album from nineteen ninety four with the skull the the different artwork on it. I can't remember what that album's called. Someone's yelling at me about it now, but um, with uh, Ditto Head on it. Yeah, that one. And Defining uh, 
What's that? Divine intervention, isn't that's it? That's the one. That's the, that's the bloody one. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't stand up. I'm sorry, but the the riffs aren't there. The, it was recorded in different. I don't even think the band was present in that one. Meaning that for that one and the follow up, though, Jeff certainly wasn't present on Diabolus and Musica. He checked out by then. But um, I th- a, a Divine Intervention was recorded in multiple studios, so it was very patchy. So th- there's technical reasons why it didn't sound that great. Still not a bad album, though. It's still got all the aggression, which I think kind of disappeared. Because I don't know what's what's the one after Divine Intervention. You got you know, got the punk covers album, which I still thought was kind of fun. Yes, yeah, God then, hates us all is the two thousand and one album. So that's effectively the follow up to Diabolus and Musica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, but I mean, can you can you seriously can you beat? Honest, I, I already struggled with Slayer a lot of the time anyway before I saw them live. It was only once I saw them live that I actually understood them. Up until that point, I just didn't get it. Weirdly, but after that, I was like, "Oh yeah, now I see why." So they were they they were never really as much of an influence on me. I don't think. I mean, I had like friends who were well into Slayer and stuff like that, and got me go around slapping Slayer and stuff like that, you know. But um, for me, I think it was always always Megadeth and a bit of Metallica from that kind of kind of era and, and like yourself Anthrax I didn't really ever quite get I listened to them because they you know because they were there and they were Anthrax and The Sound of White Noise I think is an absolutely immensely good album great yeah. and I listened to the earlier stuff I just find it um, too clowny that makes sense it's just yeah, no, I understand it, what you're saying. It never felt, it felt like a band that was like portraying themselves, we don't take anything seriously. But in doing so, it was seriously projecting an image of not being serious, if that makes any sense at all. Like it was, it just didn't feel quite like... Um, yeah, no, I agree. They, I, did, I didn't think that they were the... I, I certainly had those those older albums. I got into the look. Okay, I want to be clear here. I got Sound of White Noise first, or no, uh, POT, uh, Persistence of Time. Sorry, and yeah, this, oh, I, that, that one's good as well. I like that. Like that one and the Sound of White Noise, even though you know they changed to John Bush. But when that album, his vocals works, and the whole atmosphere of the album just works really well for him and the band. Yeah, they they I agree with you totally though about the clown aspect of the band. They they were at their best when they embraced their dark side. And that's what they did with persistence of time. They they stopped fooling around effectively. But I think they also realized that they couldn't work with um Joey Belladonna around about that point too. And that's why the music shifted into more of a it was weird. They're the only band that turned into a rock band and got heavier. So they got heavier on Stomp 442 and and Sound of White Noise, in my opinion. And it just worked, and when and then when they lost John, I was like, "What, what are you guys going to do?" And then I I saw them. So when they toured, they toured Australia in two thousand and four, I think it was, as I say, with Joey Vera and John on vocals. So half of Armored Saint, and then they toured a year later with Joey, and they mate, they weren't better. I can assure you, it wasn't like as if it was like, "Oh, the band's back again," and you know, every all the fans are happy, mate. I thought that to be honest, the quality went down a notch. With Joey out front. Now I'm drawing on an almost 20 year memory here, 17, 18 year memory here. But I 
it's, it's intact. I'm not not abuse my brain too much here, alcohol. So so it's intact. I, I just felt like John had the power in his voice to match what Scott's what Scott's right hand was doing, and same thing with with um um what's his name Charlie's drumming as well. That yeah. that really sort of because he's really ahead of the beat, isn't he, Charlie? He's really rushes the beat, and John's voice suited that I think a lot more than than what Joey's did, but. King is a king of all kings, or, or the, the last worship music and the, the last one that they did. No, they're serviceable. They've got a couple of really good songs, and I think that's the issue with Anthrax overall is that the albums lack consistency. They've except for Sound of White Noise. That's the only consistent album that they've bought out. I don't know. Persistence of Time is still pretty good. Come on. Oh, it's a great yeah. album. It just I just don't find as I move into well into middle age, I just don't find it's an album I can put on, whereas Stomp 442 in particular, now, I love that album, so that's my favourite from theirs, but that's just a personal thing. I think kind of lost me. Oh, really? Yeah. No, it's... That it's was not a white noise. I, I just, I just got, kind of got lost and they disappeared for a while. They didn't do anything. And then I think Dan Spitz, Dan Spitz wasn't there anymore, so it kind of like seemed like you just don't know what's going on. And by the time I actually hear the album, it's been so long that I kind of lost interest in... in in all things anthrax which is probably about the same time as i lost all thing all interest in all things metallica because they just completely just self-destructed in my in my view yeah i mean it might people can like the load reload album i've heard plenty of people that do like it but it's just nah but i wonder people still likes the black album I think it's actually, you know, a really good album. It's just, it's just, I think it's just a victim of its own success that it was so successful that I think it put all the Metallica fans' nose out of joint in that it was so successful. If it hadn't have done that well and it'd still have had their band without everyone else in the world knowing about it, I think it would be much more, um, they'd see it much more as an album that was, that was, you know, really good. Yeah. Yeah, I see your point, and it was a great album. It's it is a great album. You're right. It was produced within an inch, within an inch of its life, so it's it's very hard to sort of listen to it. It's very samey. It's very. I'm not saying it's compressed. I'm saying that the dynamic is very similar. So it's a broad dynamic, but it's very similar throughout. The songs are, oh, the songs are, are amazing. Though. It's really really good. It's like everything on the album just sounds great. Hmm. It's almost too perfect is probably what I'm saying. There's no flaws in it. That's that's what I mean by that. True. Yeah, but it's not devoid of characters. It's not devoid. Of, it's it's nowhere near as shit as the the heavy metal absolutists want to want to say. But yeah, I, I would agree with them and say that it wasn't an album that was enduring for me personally. That will always be the big one, Master of Puppets. That's pretty much where the band. Well, those the two albums will always be Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets because when I was 15 through to maybe 18, 19. That was that was two of the most played albums. Like that I that Angel Dust and a few other things, right? Faith No More, that Primus, um, some of the cradle stuff. It was just that was that was it. But you, how much money did we have to spend on CDs when we were 15 and 16? You'd fuck all, right? So yeah. what you had, but, you played to death. And you borrowed off people and played that to death and then, you know. Recorded it. Yeah. <laughs> bought your own copy or you recorded it on the tape that used to be good 
I just go, oh, God, when can I have my CD back? Oh, yeah, I'm recording it the tape this evening. You record the tape, then you listen to that tape to death. But now for me, the Metallica albums, they're always like, and Justice for All, because you know, I first kind of heard them when I heard that um, one song. Yeah, that was, that was that was brilliant. And I think like years later when I picked up, picked up guitar, that's like one of the ones I really wanted to learn how to play along you know, into Sandman and wherever we, we may roam and stuff like that. So for me, it was always like, you know, and Justice for All and the Black Album. And then Master Purpose is all right. Red Lighting is all right. First Kill Em All is all right as well. And I all like those albums, but then, you know, there's Megadeth and they did Rust in Peace and no one can top Rust in Peace. And I will die on that hill. No one can make a better, fresh speed metal album than Rust in Peace. Mm. No, I'd, I'd agree, except that I think uh, I go between that and um, Rain and Blood, I've got to say. Uh, I, I, I mean, Rain and Blood's got the aggression, it's got the speed, but Rust in Pieces has everything. It's got aggression, it's got you know, tempo changes. It's a more complete album, and it's technically far more proficient than you know, Rain and Blood. Rain and Blood is, is basically chaos in a little bottle. In a 20 minute long bottle or something like that. I don't mm. know how long is that album? Is it 30 or 20 minutes? But it's, I, don't it's short. it's, I don't even think it's 30 minutes. Yeah. It's it's a hell of a, uh, let me see. I'll check it out. Brain and uh, Blood is basically like 28.55, mate. It's not even half an hour, but it feels longer. Yeah. Yeah. But you're relentlessly being, you're on the floor, you're being relentlessly being punched in the head for 28 minutes. Now that that's what makes it absolutely brilliant. But I don't think it's the best one because it, that's it's got a one facet. Whereas I think Rust in Peace just has a bit of everything. Mm. It has you know, the, it has a song. It has a songwriting, it has a technicality, and it's got Marty Friedman on guitar, which makes the whole thing is just. I don't think there's a there's not a bad song on the album. Yeah, you've convinced me. I, look, I love that album back in the day. I don't want you to say otherwise, but I got into Rust in Peace a lot, a lot of way before I even see. The thing about Slayer was was that because I was already into death metal, I kind of took a view that what's the point listening to Slayer because I'm already into the heavy shit. And when you're listening to Morbid Angel and Trey's guitar playing in particular, it makes a lot of other guitarists sound. It's it's not that they're underwhelming or what have you, but Trey's so all encompassing. He does everything. So. I tend I tended to just when I wanted an extreme music fix I just went straight to uh, straight to uh Trey's playing in Morbid Angel of course and later on I got into uh Slayer and and probably oh god I'll admit this now it was maybe 2005 or 6 or something like that by the time I finally came around to the Slayer train and that's when I I had um iTunes and downloaded uh Rain in Blood so I was already 30 or something like that by that stage because they they I missed them completely the first time around. I just ignored them, to be honest. And I remember it was great gym music. It was really good when I was bored, like in the train, the long train rides between the Gold Coast and Brisbane and great putting them on for that. And uh, it's something about it just spoke to me. And, and I thought, wow, man. And then I went back and got the other two albums and I've got them in the car on, I think I've got all three, so Seasons, um, Rain in Blood. What's the other one? Yeah, I've got them all, all three. Um, South of Heaven. Yeah, I've, I've got them in the car, and when the kids aren't in the car, I tend to put them on. I will. I will give Slayer this though. That those three albums, if you actually look at them, they've they've got like an amazing evolution between all of them. Hmm. 
mean, they could have so easily made like Rain and Blood Part Two, just another fast album, but then they went and did South of Heaven. I'd love that album. But it's not Rain and Blood Part Two at all. So you know, that that would have pissed some people off when that came out. And then you've got Seasons in the Abyss, which is just, I don't know, just way better songwriting than both of the other two. Yeah, and then it just stopped. I don't know what the hell happened, but uh, maybe grunge came along and it changed their perspective on things. And see, we're old enough to remember when grunge came in and grunge, well, I, I don't believe for a moment that it killed everything because bands like Morbid Angel got got major label deals after the grunge thing exploded. People have got to remember that when they're hating on grunge and the alternative boom is that all of a sudden it made weird bands palatable to, a corp- to, to corporate culture, to the boardroom. And so there were some stupid deals that were around, but I don't, I don't believe for a moment even the E-rate bands, uh, well, of course, Morbid Angel is one of them, but the E-rate bands and a lot of the Roadrunner bands, they were popular beforehand, but they became as popular as I think you could possibly get after the grunge boom because there were some of those people who listened to Nirvana and particularly Soundgarden and Corrosion and Conformity and these killer bands like Corrosion. And they went, well, I want something a bit darker and a bit heavier. And that's when they made the jump to Entombed and bands like that. I actually think this is just because grunge was still guitar-based that you could actually, it was very easy to be, to listen to both. There's not that big a hop between the two kind of things. Yeah, like the metal's a bit more, a bit, a bit faster, a bit more aggressive. Then you've got the grunge, which is a darker thing. Then you've got Alice in Chains that, that straddle the two kind of in between. So it was more of like a, I think, a blurred line. Yeah, no, so, you're not wrong. So I, don't, I don't think grunge didn't kill metal. It probably did kill hair metal quite badly. I mean, all, the, all those bands suddenly just were not cool, cool at all. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Half the metal bands wearing flannel shirts anyway, just because they're wearing flannel shirts, not because it's grunge. It's like, um, so yeah, no, that grunge, grunge didn't, didn't kill metal. Um, because then what? New metal came along. I think that was actually worse for... <laughs> worst in grunge to be honest if I look at it because it's just the songs just weren't there whereas at least with grunge you had some really interesting stuff going on if you look at like some, some of those bands like I know like Mother Love Bone which became Pearl Jam Pearl Jam themselves they were all songs which weren't meant to be commercial in a way it was almost like kind of being anti-commercial and lots of things but still did really really well and then after that, it just became all about, you know, having sing-along choruses and stuff like that to kind of get you up there. But the whole grunge metal thing in the beginning of the 90s, I think that, that there's, there's a lot of stuff that jumped over from one to the other. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah. The hair metal thing was, yeah, the hair metal, it, it stopped it for a little bit. But then people have got to remember too, Bon Jovi were still huge through that period with Keep the Faith and whatever the follow-up album was, Have a Nice Day, or, or there were even, I think, I don't know, I'm not a fan. So, But I just remember you'd be, again, you'd be in a supermarket and you'd hear bloody Bon Jovi coming over the speaker and it's like, is that an old song or a new song you couldn't tell? But the point is they were, they were huge through that period. And the other thing too was the grunge boom coincided with the hip-hop thing. So you had Tupac and all of those other rappers and those hip-hop artists coming out there as well. So music was changing anyway. And, uh, yeah, the, the hair metal thing was the one benefit. I'll tell you, the one benefit that it did have was that all of a sudden you'd see albums like Pride from White Line in the bargain basement bin for like $5. Yeah, so it was, it was like a, 
Yeah, and that's all all I could afford. So you get two or three of these albums, and they ended up being pretty bloody good, actually. I've I've, I've always liked hair metal. I'm I'm never going to shy away from that. There were some really good bands, some 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 amazing guitar players. Like, I think the Extreme second album is probably still one of my favourite things to listen to, just because of the guitar playing. Yeah. Because Nina Benkor is just like, he's he's totally on fire on that album. It's just, it's an amazing thing to listen through. But yeah, I think that's kind of one thing I did miss in the 90s a bit was the technicality of some of the players. No one really wanted to show off in terms of grunge and stuff like that. But then you had Pantera come along and that was definitely all about the solos and stuff like that. But you kind of like lost out on it a little bit. I think that's back now in Vogue. Like there's loads of technical guitar playing out there in the moment, which is not cool to see. But um, there'll probably be like, you know, some kind of backlash against that at some point. They will start playing simple stuff again and the cycle will go round and round again. It's almost too technical at the moment. So I'm, I'm not picking on Archspire, by the way, but I just saw them with my mates in Werewolves and uh, in Jest, I think, or in, in Jest. Sorry, I can't remember the name of the band. They're a British band from well, the band from Manchester anyway. Good guys too, or the singer is. So I had a good chat to him. But, um, yeah, Archspire, I just found it was too much. It's one of the – it's – I had to go home anyway because it was getting late and I had to go to, to go to work, you know, the next day and get the kids up and all the rest of it. But it was an easy excuse because I just found it was an onslaught. And I've interviewed the drummer before, really cool guy too. All these people are so cool. But um, I just found the way way the live mixing was done, it sounded almost like Santanga. And then you had all the wiggly diddly stuff on top of it. And at its core, it might just be because of the era that I came through ever, but I have to have a fairly – there has to be an element of melody. And there I have to be able to identify that there's a groove there. If I can't, then I tend to tune out. It's just natural. It's just, it tends to be where my melodic sensibilities head. And um, there's other bands around too that do the the widdly, you know, I call it the widdly diddly stuff, you know, the solos for solos sake stuff. So almost entire songs are just solos. Lucas Mann from Rings of Satin is another one that does it quite well. But um, yeah, I just found when I was watching Art Spy, it's like respect the hell out of what they're doing. Like, like, uh, what they're doing in their own way, but it's just not for me personally. So, yeah, it might be a reflection of the era that I came from. I don't know. It just could be personal preference anyway. It could be because, no, there, there is tech death that I'll listen to and go, like, that's really, really clever. And um, then I also realise I'll never be able to play it. So, you know, I have massive respect for those guys that, that they can put it off that tightly. It's like that takes a lot of practice. And, you know, for three or four songs, I could be into it and go, this is really, really cool. But then I find um, it's, as you say, it becomes too much of the same, too much of a good thing. And then you don't have a slow song because they don't have a slow song because that's not technical enough kind of thing. So you don't have that um, contrast that I really like. Like my, my favorite stuff is where you get someone, you get some ultra technical passages, but you, you get a contrast with something that's completely different, which means the ultra technical thing has that much more impact than if it was just like five minutes of technical stuff. Mm. I'm with you. Yeah, Ingested, that was the name of the band. Yeah, too. And uh, look, they all put on a great show, but there's apart from from where Werewolves don't do it, but the other two bands, Archspire and Ingested, had backing tracks going on too. And I could hear they even had subs, like, you know, that sound. They had that yeah. going on. And I thought, isn't that interesting? We've evolved to a point where it almost sounds like hardcore techno. 
on a live perspective, that's what Archspire actually reminded me of. It's like all of that stuff. And and but the popularity of the group, it was the first time the zoo in Brisbane, it was the first time I'd seen, I'm sure this happened before, I'm not saying when I've seen it, a lineup around the block. There were hundreds yeah. of people there, and I know Dicey, the promoter, I said, man, look at this place, man. Look at you. You've done it. And I, I ended up saying, how did, how did you know that it was going to be this this way? And I'll tell you off record later on, you know, what, how, how, how the promoters and the agents sort of get a feel for, well, what he said to me is what I'm saying. But, but yeah, it's to me, Archspire wouldn't pull more than like 100 people maybe in a place town like Brisbane. But, mate, here you are, a packed out zoo. Uh, Archspire is definitely one of those bands. They're well-known. they they're pretty good. They're, they're really good at what they do. So it, it doesn't surprise me they pull they they pull the big crowd and stuff like that. I just know that for me, it's like I've got a boredom threshold when listening to stuff that confuses my brain too much. To be honest, after yeah. a while it becomes too much. I can listen to a guy like this is really really cool. I'll sit there and analyze it all the way through, but then I want to go listen to something else. So it's it. That, that, that's the same thing. It's very rare that any any band really holds my attention for for long anymore. I think I've just become, I don't know. It's like the moving with the times when no one has the attention span they used to have. No, I'm with you. Don't worry. I'm, I'm, I find the same. It's difficult. And one of the advantages of doing podcasting and and at the occasional review that I do is that you're forced to listen to something. So. You, you, your frequency shifts, so you you block out all of the outside noise. You know, I've got to pay this bill, or I've got to pick up the kids by four thirty, or dance classes are on, or what have you. And you're like, just focus on listening to the album because what you write, people are going to be reading and they can comment on. So, you know, keep your reputation intact by by putting some credible stuff out there if you're commenting on bands. You know, blowing this up right now, commenting on all these bands on a podcast. You know, but anyway, <laughs> um, it was. Uh, Mate, you got to slaughter your sacred cows, right? Haven't you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, it's like this is, there's bands I like. There's periods of periods of music I like by bands, and after that, I was I'm as opinionated as everyone else. Going actually, after that, I didn't think it was very good. So you know, you got to you got to die on that hill. Basically, sometimes you can't just go around saying everything is amazing, everything is good, even even you know. Even Santanga's an amazing piece of work. You just can't do that. There's going to be stuff that you don't like and you do like, and that's the whole point about you know being able to talk to people about it. Because some people go like, "What do you mean you don't like this?" And I go like, "I absolutely hate it." And then they'll just go go. Then then you find that people will talk for half an hour about why this one album by this one band that you absolutely hate for them is the greatest thing ever. And at the end of it, you'll go, "They've got a point," but I still hate it. Yeah, I made but the mistake. I made the mistake. <laughs> I'm just laughing because once I made the mistake, I thought I was trying to when I say promote the show, you know how there are all those cradle of filth forums on um Facebook. Yeah. Okay. I made the mistake once of joining one and sharing, I think it was a chat with Stuart or might have been the one with Greg. I can't recall now, but I shared it. Holy shit. <laughs> Sponsors that I got to that were like how dare you talk about Danny Filth this way? He's my hero, all this sort of shit. I'm like going, who am I interacting? Eventually, I think I didn't take it down. I just I left it there, but I'm reading these comments through. But, man, you see how tightly 
And I'm not just to be clear. It's not like I've, I've talked shit about Danny at all. I've just expressed my preferences for the musicians, and it's the musicians' contribution that I appreciate because it's the musicians who I'm listening to. The vocals they're important and they play a significant role. But for me, as a musician, it's not that I block Danny out. He just isn't the main focus of why I listened to Cradle of Filth, and that's all I've said. And then getting into the nuance of it, there's other comments that come up. But yeah, here you go. But that that's the weird thing, and I've. I've... I think what you, what you point point out there is like as as like someone who's you know as a musician that you listen to the music and the and the, and the voice vocals just become an instrument. I mean, I remember a time way way back in the past before I picked up a guitar when I could write down all the lyrics to all my favorite albums by heart without even listening to them. I could take a piece of paper and I'd be able to write them all down word for word. And then I picked up a guitar, and then I couldn't. Because everything kind of changed because I started listening to everything completely differently. Right. Yeah. Yep. yep. Ever, since, ever since then, people go like, but what about the vocals? And I go, I have a really hard time hearing. Maybe it's hearing loss. It's probably part of it. I mean, I can't hear conversations in cars, but maybe that's like no, having trained your ear to just listen to music and how everything fits together musically. But I, I can't, I, I don't understand lyrics. It takes me a lot of effort to actually listen to lyrics and understand what they are because I just switch off after a while and just go back to listening to the music. Yep. And and it's been like that for a, a very long time for me. I've got to say it was it was probably you know what you know what band for me broke the back of that stuff? It was Living Colour because I'm such a huge Living Colour fan back in the day and trying to mimic Doug Wimbish's playing being a bass player. And it was really then that I Faith No More a little bit, uh Primus never because there's no way you can mimic Les Claypool's playing. But Living Colour, I thought, it's technical enough that I might be able to play parts of this song. This is when you used to have to get the tablature in the back of Guitar World and shit. So, and, and I'm not saying there was a moment, but after that, I just remember it was like, well, when I'm listening to Fishbone or Bands as Disparate as Fishbone or Cradle of Filth or whatever, I want to focus on when I'm listening to it this time, I'm focusing on the guitars or the drums or the bass, if I can ever hear the bass. That's what was going on. It was almost never the vocal. And that because it was around about when I got into Living Colour that I thought maybe I can be a musician and I can actually, I started playing in bands. That's what happened. Yeah, when you, when you start listening to stuff and picking it apart and trying to hear the bits that you want to learn to play, then you just kind of start seeing the vocals as an instrument, which actually, weirdly, I think is one of the reasons why I just didn't have any problem with death metal vocals at one point. It's like, because you know, when it first starts, starts out, you hear this kind of stuff, you hear videos and you're, you're a young kid and go like, oh my God. I can't mm. understand the words. But then I think I think if everyone gets into extreme metal, suddenly it kind of clicks and you go like, oh, it's just another instrument. Just screaming over the top of things, which just kind of adds something completely different to it. It's not, it's not, it's not a song, it's just scream, then it's got like guttural growls. And you go, I don't really care about the lyrics. I mean, for a lot of the 90s death metal, the lyrics were absolutely hilarious. Well, I don't think the don't think the PMRC or whatever thought they were that hilarious. But you know, when you opened the book in <laughs> this kind of stuff and went, you know, this is like some some proper, I don't know, it's just words thrown together to sound like some weird torture thing. Everyone trying to be more extreme in their lyrics than the last band that you'd find. And we were friends used to read, read for like death metal lyrics and just laugh our asses off, going, Oh my god, god, have you seen this shit? Yeah, I, I remember. 
being a good good young Christian, I remember having D- Legion and reading the lyrics in. I think the lyrics were in. Yeah, li- lyrics were def- certainly in the copy that I had. But Satan spawned the Coca Demon. I think it was the first song or the second song on that album. And you read the lyrics and that, and you're like, Am I reading an invocation? Is the devil going to visit me tonight if I finish reading these lyrics? And yeah, it was it was so out there and so full on at the time. But isn't it incredible that? nearly 30 years later or so that those lyrics they aren't the most extreme thing in there that out there the most extreme thing that i can point to is like wet ass pussy and that stuff that's aimed at kids by cardi yeah. b i mean yeah they worse oh, way worse i know we might have talked about it when, when we first chatted but i listened to some of the lyrics in some of the songs that the kids would listen on youtube and believe me clearly i'm not a prude being into heavy metal and death metal and black metal but mate Give me satanic blackened death metal any time over some of the shit and the lyrics that they're listening to that I can hear now. I think it's the whole thing is that it literally has always been like theatre to me. Like metal is always theatre. It's always got a sense of sense of bombast to it of something like you know just like like I don't know the the lyrics are like like the bit D and D and stuff like that. You can get really dorky with them if you go into power metal with all the castles and dragons and shit. Like you know. Rhapsody's album of the coconut horseshoe sounds at the beginning is still just absolutely amazing to listen to. It still makes me crack up because it's so good. And then they suddenly get um oh that fame that, that that actor guy, I can't remember his name now. They get him to narrate the whole album. And uh, I was like, Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I was like, amazing. And you just, you can't just get better than that. I mean, it's just you just look at lyrics and you just kind of know that. To, to really believe in that stuff it's 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 really really out there but a lot of that stuff is just written because it sounded cool rather than people actually meant it symphony of enchanted lands to the dark secret i had to look that up actually with uh christopher lee there you go that's and that's an amazing title come on you've got you've got to give it to them that's an amazing title Oh, it's it's unreal! It's unreal. I've actually spoken to Luca before. He doesn't do a lot of interviews, but I've had a good chat to him. He's a he's a he's a hilarious fellow. I get the impression that he'd be really fun to have in a tour bus. Doesn't <laughs> drink now. Like, like all the real crazies, mate. Doesn't drink. <laughs> yeah, you get a lot of people saying I don't they don't trust someone who doesn't drink. So you know, I guess I'm these days untrustworthy, but. Nah, I don't, I don't think this, this, this is the bit where you edit it out because I completely forgot what I was going to say. It's like, get a snip and you get the YouTube head going to that side like that when there's really bad cuts. But you, when it's halfway through, you're saying something, you know, and does not only does the voice jump, but the head just comes back in like yes. some completely <laughs> different angles. So talking this way and suddenly it's that way and suddenly this way and this way and then suddenly it's moved over there. Oh man, that stuff does my head in looking to jump cuts and stuff like that. At least put like some kind of romantic fade in between the two things or yeah. something like that. So you, or just, you can't or do just, fade in Let's we'll do it again. You're only speaking for 10 minutes. Sure, you can get through it at 10 minutes without fucking up every single 15 seconds. Um, I can't. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm an amateur of this shit, so I've got an excuse. <laughs> No, I think it's important to do it. It was there was some I can't remember the guy's name now. The point will be redundant, but um, uh, some bloke was talking to Guitar World, and 
the way that the person he claims later the way that his words were misrepresented in print articles. So he's talking to Guitar World. You know, we all know Guitar World, right? Uh, the the journalist there. And his commentary was around the formation of Motley Crue. The way that the author the way that the author framed it was that this, according to this guy, who reckons that he never said that, was the co-founding guitarist in Motley Crue alongside of Tommy Lee. And uh, I've got to look up what this guy's name was. Sorry, it'll make it'll make sense because I've never heard of this guy before. But it drove home to me that print print, including online interviews, so not doing what we're doing here is open to all sorts of trickery and fuckery. That's why this sort of format and hearing all the blurps and blarps, as I call them, that's why I left a conversation with Stuart intact in full. So as the people understood, that was the dynamic of the chat because you've got to hear the nuance. Even someone taking a breath in sort of signifies whether or not they're about to say something important or the emotional weight behind things. And uh, so I'll get to as soon as I can open up Twitter, which has decided not to open up. It's giving me a blank screen here. Uh, yuck. Hang on, let me look at my phone. Because I just want to. Not, not paid Elon Musk, have you? What's that? <laughs> You've not paid Elon Musk enough money to be able to use Twitter. Uh, apparently not. No. Um, what's this guy's name? It was Mitch Lafon, who was one of these journo types. Greg Leon is the name of the guitarist. Um, Andrew Daly is the name of the guitar world journalist but apparently according to this guy greg leon there are a lot of things in this interview that i did not say the interviewer added some of his own bullshit that's a real issue james i've got to say that's been an issue now for a long time and it's one of the reasons that i got into podcast podcasting was just put it all out there no matter what it is put it all out there and i'll let people make up their own mind as I, as I said up the top i'm a free speech absolutist so i think all ideas are provided the rule of common sense has run over them are worth listening to but then when you hear stories like that so a bloke's done an interview with a credible masthead and the journalist according to the person who's been interviewed has manipulated his words or flat out made them up that's for that to happen in 2023 is bullshit. It's ridiculous. Maybe interview was a bit too boring. You had to get something out of it. Well, it was. But then again, if it was really boring, you wouldn't print it, would you? Well, to just yeah, exactly, and and but to just make up that this guy was the co-founding guitarist in Motley Crue, like every I mean, the dirt has been out now for twenty years or whatever it's been out, the book and the movie's but been out for four or five, you know. The dirt, the dirt. I, was such, I really enjoyed reading that book. But then, uh, then there's also the really bad party idea where you decide when you're drunk that you're gonna throw open the dirt, and then whatever whatever happens on that page, you have to do. Oh my god! And, oh, wow. and I think no no one actually wants to play that game. And looking back, I can see it's probably for a really good reason. Those guys are swallowing light globes and all sorts of stupid shit. I don't know how they're not they're not dead or dead. yeah. Yeah, like definitely. It's one of those bands where you where you go like, how are they not dead? Along with Aerosmith and um, probably Black Sabbath as well. Oh, like right. how how yeah, they yeah, they're they're all fucking they're all they're all on everything you could probably imagine in the seventies and early eighties. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think they did survive intact. I mean, have you have you have you are you even slightly interested in this Aussie podcast that's going around at the moment? Uh, I've, I've I've tried watching it, but I just I just can't. I mean, to be honest, from what I have seen, 
Aussie seems the, the the best thing about it, while the other ones is just like I, I never got into the Osbournes that reality show when that came out either because I just looked at them and went, I know, I just nah, it's not for me at all, and I think it kind of ruined Aussie a little bit for me seeing seeing too much. Same, yeah, yeah, correct. Before that. It was like, you know, he's Ozzy Osbourne. He bites the head off bats. That's all I kind of need to know for it to be cool. I don't need to, I did, don't need to know what that he's got dogs. I don't need to know what house he lives in. I don't need to know anything apart from that he's the Prince of Darkness and he does batshit crazy things. Mm. That was kind of enough. And then seeing, you know, and then, then you see when they have... It's the weird thing, I guess. It's like when you see musicians have opinions... Too many opinions, it can it can do like you know it can massively turn turn you off to like you know what's that the, the Jordan system of a down claiming that because of his opinions he's oh, lost a hundred thousand. It's like it's just I don't think so, but I do I do think that musicians should really just not talk about politics because they're not that smart and they don't know that much and most of the views are completely and utterly uninformed. Um, a lot it's, of it's, it's, yeah. terrible, it's a terrible idea to ask a musician about anything that isn't music. You don't know what you're going to get. You get it. You know, I, I I do talk politics. If you listen to some of my chats, like uh, Scotty from Carnifex, you get a feel. One often the the cycle of the interview. So there's either a tour or an album. When you have got a band like Carnifex who are touring and writing albums quite a bit, it means that opportunities come up to have a chat regularly. So by the third or fourth meeting, you they, they remember you and and you've got a pretty good yeah. grasp on what they're about. That's a pretty good time to gauge whether or not you can talk about a, lo- a number of different topics, whether or not it's worthwhile or not. You, generally speaking, I'm not going to introduce a topic like that to someone who I haven't met before or got some sort of an idea or it's not really their thing because they, yeah, it's, it's, pit- it's painful listening to some people stumble through the very narrow gap between not trying to offend anybody and also answer the question. That's terrible yeah. because that's all that self-censorship kicks in. You want to speak to somebody who has some vague awareness of the fact that there's an audience out there but also has the has the basic intelligence enough to have been well-read and therefore be informed to have an opinion that is coherent as well. So I, I agree. I understand what you're saying and I agree with it to a point but I also think it's valuable to sort of, if someone wants to go there and have the conversation, to go there as well, but only not every not every chat. Like, if you do it every conversation, you might as well just call your your podcast or your your outlet, you know, politics and metal or something like that, you know. But it's 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 also not what people want to hear when they're tuning into music too. A music based podcast as well. No, it's just like if, if I'm into music, I really just don't want to know what 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 people think. I think in some cases it can, if they've got a completely different viewpoint to mine. Or one that I just can't can't get behind. It does ruin music for me. But then that kind of leads into like again, it's like how much can you tolerate from an artist before you just go like I'm not going to listen to them anymore. So in that sense, for most of the middle most of the most stuff, I'll just go like I'm not really interested in what my no my musical heroes think because I kind of in a selfish way just don't want to ruin it for me. Hmm. Yeah, I find it. I find it interesting listening to regular people talk about politics because they've got no skin in the game. So musicians included, because if you listen to a politician talk about these issues, they've clearly got a pitch, they've got an angle. Same thing with the the CNN-style journalists. You know they're reading from a script 
or they've been given talking points that they've got to adhere to. So it's almost it's almost pointless. I think the some of the gold in terms of my awareness of where we're at as a society does come from listening to regular people, whether they're just throwing musicians into the mix in general because of that. Um, talk about what's going on because then you hear what other regular people, how they're affected by how much our taxes are going up or hyperinflation, all these things that as householders we need to be aware of. Like, yeah, I know that's very adult and very sort of dry and boring topics for to talk about in the metal podcast or what have you, but occasionally to go there and to get an informed opinion by somebody who plays music, it just sort of brings that that stuff isn't a world away. It's in the right here and the right now. And that's that's probably as good a summary as I can give to anybody as to why I do talk politics on the show from time to time. It's a try to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah. I, I, go off, I go off on too many rants and I just kind of think there's a time and a place for that and stuff like that. But just, you know, just when you're, when you're going on about music, it, it kind of is, isn't it. Because I think the world's actually at the moment is way more fragmented than it used to be. People have weight of so many polarizing views a lot more than than I remember, like growing up and even 10, 15 years ago, where it's like it's very black and white. So yeah, like I know. One space, I know it's crazy. Like one space in a viewpoint where you still have a way of people talking to each other, still via kind of talking about bands and music and what you like or what you don't do, and listening to have that to have that kind of like experience there in there. Cause Whilst you know music can bring up a lot of you know stuff inside you and just like make you feel in a certain way, remind you of a certain time, it's very much a way of um, sharing stuff with people that you might not otherwise talk to. And if you just leave the politics out out of you, just don't have that problem. Yeah, it can bubble away. I just find it can bubble away. I've been in bands with people that have been really politically motivated, and usually they're they're far left wing types. And if you don't agree with them, they accuse you. So, so what was the what was what? If you don't stand against racism, you are clearly for it. It's like really, it's that black and white to you. To your point about it being a binary equation, mm-hmm. it's like it's, it's too binary. It's like nothing is binary. If you used to be around long enough, you know nothing is 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 you know black or white it's always something somewhere in between mm. yeah of course you kind of, kind of accept that and work towards the somewhere in between which is you know, known as compromise and you know let's all just get along like mars attacks then you know it's it, it makes i don't know just life life better if you're not fighting all the time and you actually learn to to you know chill out and get along Mm. Well, Lots of hippie sentiment there, so I apologise for that on on a show about metal. But you know, <laughs> yeah, it's important, mate. It's important. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know how we got to a point where things have become so binary so quickly. I mean, the amount of kids that are walking around in Palestinian flags that are hopelessly inarticulate about what's actually going on in that region—they just pick a side straight away because they're their heroes pick a side or what have you seeing this i'm only seeing what the algorithm's throwing up now i know it's only a very small percentage okay so i'm not saying it's an absolute minority meaning a great amount of a minority people doing it or what have you but it's just like the the thing to do is exactly what you said find compromise at some point but that seems to be an art that's if you're underneath the age of 35 this is my my middle my approaching middle aged man speak here if you're underneath the age of about 35 you just don't seem to have had the same education that we got where you were forced to think about things and pitch an argument 
you were forced to be, you had to write essays, you had to stand up in front of people and pitch your case. Whereas these days, it just seems like I'm only, as I said, I'm only going by what I'm seeing with the algorithms throwing up. Okay. I'm, and I, you know, God knows there's probably all these people underneath 35 who are loaded with common sense are going, you're wrong. But I'm, I hope I I'm wrong. Actually, I have to completely disagree with, agree with that. I do think there's there's lots of critical thinking out there. I do think there's people, you know, who do look at both sides. I just think that um, we've developed into a place where it's much easier to say something that isn't true just to get a rise and just to basically get people to listen to you than it is, and then later apologise for it when no one actually sees you apologising for it, than it is to actually compromise. You get way more coverage by saying something extreme and just pushing the boundaries further and further apart than you would if you were being reasonable. Yeah. And and I'm afraid lots of these people push those boundaries of being unreasonable are over 35 and should know better. Well, I, I think that they're they're bought by the corporatocracy, though. I think that's what was what I talked about, where they're reading from a script if they're on CNN or what have you. And uh, I mean, the fact that we've got two two major news outlets that more or less in, is worldwide too. So CNN is left wing and Fox News is right wing. It's like there just isn't the centre base anymore. There isn't people talking about things. P- Piers Morgan has had some some incredible conversations recently, and some of them have been vaguely horrific, to be honest. You get he's been getting these Palestinian activists on to pitch their case. And I'll, fair play to Piers. I mean, he comes across as a bit of a wanker from time to time, but at least he's trying to get to the bottom of things and actually let people have their speech. Again, being a free speech absolutist, let people say what they want to say. But it's it's beyond being hopelessly uninformed. They're, ide- they're ideologues, these people. They have an ideology, and despite all other available evidence, they will stick to an ideology regardless. And that's what I mean by the under-35s. Yeah, well, that's literally both sides. It's just, and I don't think it's over 35, under-35s. I think it's just pretty much everyone once they've gone down a certain route. I actually think the older you get, the more your views harden and the less likely you are to be able to actually do any critical thinking. Really? That's interesting. I, I tend to go the opposite way. I think you know when you're when you're when you're young, you still have like lots of ideas being thrown at you, and it's just like yeah, you'll sure sure you'll get like people who will just go down a certain path because of who they're surrounded with. But when you're young, you're way more open to soaking up information, whereas when you get older, you're way more I don't know just you you've had your life path, you've had your experience, and they've kind of shaped who you are now. It's much harder to pivot at an older age than as a young age. The same is true of music. I mean, of all the new stuff coming out, you'll still find you still reach the old stuff or stuff that sounds like, you know, stuff you liked 10, 20 years ago, as opposed to stuff that you know, kids like, because you just sometimes you just don't get it. You go like, well, no, this is not interesting for me anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't see why everyone's so so into this. So that, that in that way, you're kind of views of harden because 20 if you were 20 years young you'd be going into all this stuff going this is all awesome and you'd be, you'd be able to tell differences between bands that when you get old you just listen to them and they kind of sound the same then again when i listened to the bands when i was young that were older they all sounded the same as well so you know <laughs> i guess it's kind of where your interest lies 
Mm. But I do believe that the older you get, the more your views harden and the harder it is for anyone to kind of convince you to, you know, change the way you think. And unfortunately, all the old people are the people that um, make most of, the, most of the decisions. Yeah. That's my yeah. theory on it anyway. I think that's probably as far as I should go with politics. Otherwise, it's going to be... Um, yeah. Oh, it's it's good to hear your perspective on things. You know, it, it also depends on the environment from which you're you're used to being around as well. I think uh, I I understand what you're saying about music, though. Yeah, it's I, I'm definitely not stuck in the past. There's no doubt about that. But I'm just my my knowledge bank is built up to the point where I can hear a band like most of these power metal bands sound like as though they're mimicking the first couple of Blind Guardian or um, Hel- Halloween albums, and I, I just don't see the bloody point. I'm just well. If I want to listen to Blind Guardian, they're there. They're right there. I'll listen to that shit. What new? What new thing are you adding to this? It's. I get bands have got you know you you, you want to have people who I know there are people out there for example who just listen to power metal and stuff. But I've never been that guy. I've always my music well, probably like yours, mate, goes from dub and calypso music right through to the heaviest of heavy metal. Yeah, I'm, I'm always I'm always trying to like listen to new stuff and kind of go, this is cool, this is cool, this is cool. But I do find my attention span is much shorter than it used to be. Like I'll find like one or two good songs from an from artist. I'll just try and get into them more than find out that sometimes those are the only two good songs. And then sometimes I'll just find someone and go, actually, no, that our whole album's good. Well, that is a problem though, James. That is a real issue these days is the bands aren't creating albums. And I can tell you that's that's from guys like really good producers like Michael yeah. Beanhorn. They notice that when they're producing bands, that the album's just... They they they're there to service the tour, or they're there to service the commercial product. The albums have stopped being the thing. Thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but there's a lot of albums I bought as a kid that could have been accused of the exact same thing. Where you had a really good single that you saw on MTV. You went, this is amazing. Does this, does does my local road record shop have it in stock? No, I'm gonna have to order this. Order it. Come there a week later. Take it home. Excited to listen to it, and then realize the whole album's dog shit apart from that one song they put on MTV. So, you know, I think this has been going on for a long time. That you know, producing a quality album's always been di- been difficult for for you know anyone. Like everyone's got like at least one song in them. But you have like 12 songs for an album? Do you have like 40 songs for a four good albums? Do you have those 50 songs in you? And that's where I kind of think the difference lies. Yeah. No, not, I the same point, yeah. yeah but as you say, you are shipping a product as well. So if you're like, got, got, you know, say like, um, say like Architects doing really well, they're producing some really good stuff. I really, really have been into them for like the past couple of albums. I thought they'd been absolutely brilliant in what they're doing. But then you'll find that, you know, they're not producing an album every, every year. They're doing maybe every two or three years. And for those two or three years, you've got a whole bunch of people that want to buy something that's like the architect. So what you do, you just ship a whole bunch of bands out. You kind of get them to write songs. They do all write songs in the same style, style as that band. People buy that shit up and just wait for the next album to come along, in which case, They'll do that, but those yeah. songs don't get quality. They're just basically like the um, the McDonald's that you have on, you know, as a snack during the day or something like that. Was like the meal because you can't find what you what you really want to eat. Mm. 
Yeah, you're not wrong um, about that. I'd, it probably has been going on for a long time, but I we grew up in an era where you could pick up a Megadeth album or an early Aussie album and hear it for the first time, and there was just an expectation that Balance of Probability lent toward there being a quality album there of killer killer songs, but killer, you know, you, you know, you, you know. In, I'm, I'm not saying this as a bass player. I'm saying this as a, as a music fan. But you could always tell the killer albums because you knew who the bass player was. <laughs> and that that was how I, as a kid, how I used to. That is an interesting theory. That is a real. I, I think I'm gonna have to fight you on that one because of who the bass player was. What's that? <laughs> who the bass player was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the bass player. Oh, man, you're going to have to support this argument a lot more than just this coming out of, you know, just random inflammatory oh, statements. I'll, like, I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example, okay? So how many people up to when the internet came out it became a thing, how many people could tell you who wrote the Ozzy Osbourne stuff and who was his bass player? Of course, I know who it is because I was a huge fan, but uh, and I love those albums. And the the bass is actually the linchpin. The bass and the drums are actually the linchpin of those first two albums. Randy and Ozzy just Randy does his thing, of course, and Ozzy just puts his stuff over the top. But the reason I say that is because I'm I'm not talking about the quality of the musicianship. I want to be clear here. I'm talking about the impact on popular culture. The bass player is always the fourth in line as a singer, the guitarist, and the drummer. A drummer and the bass player are sort of, you know, there or thereabouts. But the bass player was sort of, there's all, you see those memes now. And I say this is a 30 year long bass player. You, uh, you know, let my friend play bass and it's got the cool guy smoking the guitar or something. Oh, I play bass, so I'm making play the guitar like as if it's some sort of a downer to play the bass or what have you. So that's, that's all my comment is motivated by. And, um, I fell in love with the bass first before I fell in love with anything else. So I'm honestly the wrong guy to be be arguing the point against the bass player. <laughs> yeah, true. But I can see both because, you know, Steve Harris is obviously the main guy in Iron Maiden. He writes everything. You can tell other people occasionally allowed to like do some stuff, but it's it's his band, his music, and everyone else is there just, you know, just they help out. But it's, it is Steve Harris. That is his brainchild completely. With Ozzy, nah, I'm not so sure because he, he's, he's gone through guitarists like Popcorn and they've all brought something different to his band. Like I, I'm not massively into Randy Rhodes era Ozzy Osbourne. I mean, it's cool and stuff like that, but you know, I'm not massively into it. But then you go bark at the moon and it's Jake Lee and that, for me, that's amazing. Yes, I, I mean, his point. His playing and what he, what he does and everything like that just makes that album. And then two albums after that was Zach Wilde. I also, I also rate extremely highly. I just love those albums. But those those are very guitar-led in a lot of way. Maybe not the structure of the songs. I mean, I know Lemmy wrote some stuff on... Um, no More uh, Tears. Yeah, No More Tears. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I know what you're saying. It's... Uh... And I've spoken to Bob before about this, and and he wrote a lot of the music and certainly all of the lyrics on the first four or five albums. Um, and uh, he just not he wasn't credited. That was the whole court case. That's what that was about. It was that publishing royalties with Sharon? Yeah. So I think she 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 knows how to attract the right people. And I'm just reading Tanner Douglas's book, so she knows how to turn away roadies as well. It turns out she was a roadie mm-hmm. who was status quo ACDC and even Aussie and Deep Purple there for a period of time. Um, White Snake, I should say, but yeah, even she was saying that she's she's a, she's a woman that doesn't take no for an answer. 
That's that's to yeah. summarise Sharon Osbourne right there, and I thought that was as an articulate a, 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 a summary of Sharon's philosophy as ever I've heard. And if you get on the bloody wrong side of it, mate, well, we all know what happens then. You're out, including your ability to obtain royalties. She's a tough one. Yeah, and I think they remove you from albums. She should remove people from albums as well, didn't she? Oh, that was disgusting so, what she did there. Yeah, she, so she couldn't even get alcohol royalties anymore. I believe Rob Truilio when he says he didn't know what he was recording when he played the parts because Rob, I think Rob's a stand-up guy. I don't think he's he's a liar. When he and Mike Borden from Faith No More were brought in to re-record those parts on the first two albums to remove, remove to your point to remove the mechanical royalties. Um, off the recording moving forward. And I was talking to Andreas from Sepultura about it. When you listen to those re-recordings, they're not even lined up in the digital audio workstation. You can hear bits where the where the bass or the drums go just a bit too long and they're just out of sync with Randy's playing because you can't recreate that. Randy was playing along to Bob's bass. You can't fuck yeah. with that. And they tried to do that. It was ridiculous. Yes, it's one of those things we got. There was no point in doing that apart from just being utterly, utterly, utterly vindictive. Yeah, mean spirited. It was horrible. It's horrible to hear. And and I think Bob or Lee Kerslake said it best. He goes, "Forget about us. It's a disrespect to Randy." Come on. Come on, even Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley haven't done that to Ace Freely and um, Peter Chris. Chris, yeah, I'm not that big of a Kiss fan, but you know. Not even they've gone back to the 70s albums to find out, just to remove them from it. And to be honest, if, the, if if I could see anyone doing stuff like that, then the first I'd, I'd think of Gene Simmons because, you know, those guys do not get along anymore. There's a there's a good theory. <laughs> Bob, I think you've probably heard of this one. It's only a theory, okay? Bob certainly confirmed it on a couple of albums. The Creatures of the Night that he played on, I think it was Bob Kulik, Bruce's brother who sadly passed away. Mate, for all we know, he was actually the guitar player on those. I'm not saying that he is, by the way. I'm just saying the amount of ghost playing that goes on that I've heard of, you know, under the cloak of secrecy is is utterly ridiculous in rock and metal. It's like there's there's a handful of players that can play their own shit. And in terms of these big bands I'm talking about, and they seem to play on all of the albums. And it's a general, it's a very general statement, I know, but it would not surprise me in the least if there's after everybody sort of moved on and passed away, I would have you. It it came out that Bob was the player on those early Kiss albums, and that's the reason why they sound cohesive, because he should have been the Kiss guitarist. They should have had him in the band from day one, and I think they know that. It's just that Ace became a a fixture of the group, and you couldn't really replace him after the first or second album. Yeah, I do not know enough about Kiss Kiss history for for any of that. Just that, you know, if it was anyone that were going to do it, Gene Simmons seems like the kind of guy that would do it. Yeah, I got. I got to say, I've got some. I've got a lot of time for Gene. I must be. Yeah, it just because I, I take every everything that I've ever. I've read a I mean, lot. Of I mean, that's because he's ruthless. I'm not actually saying that I just hate the guy and I feel like that had anything to it, but he just seems like the kind of ruthless guy that would do it. I've, look, I've got, I've got some. I, I don't know Gene at all. Never met him, but I know a bloke who's very close to him, and we talk fairly regularly. And mm-hmm. um, this guy is a guy who who I trust, and and he tells me that Gene is actually Gene and Paul are both stand up guys. Like what what he said is, if they say they're going to do something, it happens. You just yeah. and and I believe that too, based on based on things that I've read them them talk about and. 
look, they're, they're business guys. You know, they're just business guys. I mean, they, they could have been running a hedge fund and said they're running a band. Don't yeah. that's, that's the key thing to understand about about those two guys. And the other thing too is I, I dealt. I had a number of conversations with Evan Stanley, Paul's Paul Stanley's son, and and I'll share this, mate. Um, when when I spoke to him, he was in a band called uh, the Dives, and he seemed like a really nice, articulate, smart young fella. And we were having trouble with the connection, so we agreed. This is years ago when we we're using Skype, so it wasn't stable as Zoom and. Um, he agreed, yeah, let's do the conversation later when we're coming back for rehearsal. I'll be on the subway in New York. I think he's in New York State or what have you, and it might be a bit more stable then. We'll see how we go. Anyway, I did. I called him back, and we had a really good conversation, and he didn't quite hang up the call afterwards, and I didn't realise I'd, you know, I put my headphones down, and I could hear him talking to Sergio, his bandmate, and this is without realising that they were talking with – they hadn't hung up yet, but they're just having a conversation – Evan was saying, man, that was a really good interview and, man, I love doing this and that guy was really nice. This is the shit that I could hear him saying that he didn't realise that I could hear. Of course, I heard it, I only heard it back after I'd listened to the recording. I didn't include any of it. But what it made me think is that, man, Gene and Gene and Paul, like to raise a kid like that who seems to have that level of respect for someone that's interviewing him who's just trying to give him some public some publicity or what have you. And it was the way that I could hear him talking. I just remember thinking, if I ever meet Paul, I'm going to give him that feedback that that happened. And that's what I heard him say. And he's raised a really good kid there. And that, that was my point there. So I think the thing about Gene and Paul is it's – I just, I just think that they've, they've got their head screwed on right way. And I, that interaction with, with Evan sort of gave me a bit more of an insight than most would get, I think. Yeah. You know, so – I mean, you, normally you'd expect to hear that guy's a fuck. I don't wish I'd have to do this shit anymore. This shit's garbage. I mean, talking to a dickhead in Australia, what's that going to do for me? You know, you sort of think that that it might come that someone might say shit like that. And I've I've had some clunker of interviews, mate, like Rex from Pantera, who wouldn't interview again. So trust me, they're not they're not all good. No, I'm fair with everyone's a human being, aren't they? But oh, my point about about that. By um by kisses like those the two that are no longer in the band are being replaced. They just seem to have something to say about it every single week. They're that unhappy about it, but then you kind of look at it and go, "Well, it doesn't sound like they're particularly pleasant people to deal with, or easy people to deal with, or you know, got their heads screwed on, or or stuff like that." And I think maybe in some some cases, like you know, these. It's never going to work again for those people. It's just gone too far. Well, Ace but, is clearly under the influence. I mean, you could anybody with a with any sense of reality can see that he might not be that connected anymore. You know, and Peter, I do feel a bit bit for because I've sp- I have spoken to him, and look, Peter does insist that he was never the drugs guy. That was he doesn't even say it's Ace's thing. He just goes, "That was unfair to say that was about me." I think I just think he and he and Paul and Gene didn't get along. That's it's as simple as that. And and he felt like he was on the out based on um based on royalties. And Beth was a huge hit, as we know. I think that's their biggest song, if I'm not mistaken. There's probably other songs, but I think that might be one of their it's certainly one of their biggest. It's certainly one of their centerpiece songs at the live thing. And he feel I think he felt like he was owed a bit more than he was more responsible for their success than what they let on. There you go. I think that's what it is with him. But whatevs, he's still famous. Yeah, yeah. So, he's not done too badly, has he? 
No, not at all. Not at all. Oh, look, if you're in that band for even a couple of years, like Bruce Kulik, you can have an enormous career off the back of that. And and I've spoken to Bruce a, a few times too, and he's he's an awesome guy. Like he's a, he's really appreciative, and I think he's got his his um, contribution to the band, which I actually think is more notable than what he what he says it is. I think his contribution was really important for getting them through the eighties when not a lot of people were tuning in. Oh, little people were still tuning in, but there's not a lot of legacy associated with it. But my my favorite albums have him on it from that band. Actually, they're not the earliest stuff; they're the later stuff. No, I, I, I do not know enough about Kiss to even comment on all this. I just know I just know the songs I get played. And that's that's pretty much it. That's kind of where my interest with Kiss completely ends. It's like I don't think I can ever listen to a whole album or anything like that. But there's people that are nuts about them. But that's that's the beauty of, it, isn't it? So some some bands you can go like, I just can't see why anyone would be into this. And there's other people just look at stuff that I'm into, going like, what is he listening to? That boring trite shite that he's put on. What is that? And he's waxing lyrical, but has the greatest thing ever. So come on, let's put on for Kiss. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I find that the the cultural aspect of Kiss more interesting than the music itself. I've got to say, I'll listen to I'll listen to um, some of their some of their eighties material um, in the background if I want something to just be put on. It's gr- it's great music when you're having a couple of beers, I find, or a couple of drinks, and you just want a bit of a light in the atmosphere, and you just want to feel a bit of bit of an up feeling. I find Kiss is really, really good for that, but I can't really the the earlier stuff. It's it's too entrenched in an element of culture that I don't really quite relate to. Whereas the eighty stuff, I found I could make it more my own. Does that make sense? Because nobody was listening to it, so I could just sort of insert it. In. What's um, you make me rock hard? I've even played that. I'm actually trying to get you make me rock hard. Of course, the double entendre of that um, into mm. our cover band set list because I can actually sing it. So. I'm trying to get it in there. We'll see how we go. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was definitely the decade of the double entendre, wasn't it? Oh, the lyrics and that. I, I don't. I can't even keep a straight face when I'm singing those lyrics. If you just for anybody out there, have a look up the lyrics to "You Make Me Rock Hard," and then if you if you don't, I think Desmond Child might have written it actually, and Paul wrote the lyrics. But yeah, when when you listen to that, when you read those lyrics, man, you're just like that is kiss that it's absolute pure purest form <laughs> i yeah I'll, I'll i'll have to give it a go but i'm not sure i'm gonna be, be into it so i should I, I, I will be i'm probably just looking like mm, that's all right i don't know whether you read the comments did you yeah. read the comments no one no one um was too was, was particularly hateful which is disappointing because I've got a YouTube channel where I've, where I've set a fire to a guitar and I used to get hate mail comments all the time. Mm. Like, I am, what you do to this guitar? You are a war criminal. We hunt you down with this beautiful guitar. Why are you burned? It wasn't even my guitar as, as well. I think it came out really well, but um, yeah, we definitely set a fire to that motherfucker. And now people think it's worth money and they just look at this video and go, like, what are these crazy English people doing? Do you know what? It's really hard to burn a guitar with a finish. Like really, really hard. Yeah. Well, it's got a lacquer on it and everything. It's got lots of stuff it's got to get through to get to the wood. Yeah, I know. So we, I think we went through everything from like, what was it? Zippo lighter fluid, the whole works. Zippo lighter fluid does not work. Yeah, that's that's that just, it's a flash in the pan. To Uh, really get that finish, you need the glue, the really flammable glue, because that will stick uh, and burn place. And then you just get it off. Basically, we turn the yellow guitar into a banana. Oh, really? 
Okay, there you go. Yeah. All right. I'll keep that in mind next time I'm burning a, a guitar. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. No. yeah we've got to finish. It's really, really hard. It's a lot harder than you think it is. No, look, I thought it's Sarah. I, you know, I had this chat in between us uh, first talking and Sarah, and that just has gone ballistic, as you'd appreciate. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a thing with 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 the Cradle alumni where you don't actually realise how important your contribution is. And, uh yeah, it's it's interesting, and I, I I get that because you're you're a humble fellow, but it's it's also important to understand that you have had, yet you are important to people out there, and they know who you are, and they're interested in what you've got to say as well. And there are a lot of comments. I got I got messages saying you guys talked about potentially doing uh, another show like we're clearly doing now, and people are like where well, you guys got along really well. That'd be fantastic to hear. And I didn't say anything was going to happen or otherwise. I just said I hope it does. And so here we are. So I think I think you'll find that. Look, I hope it. The other thing is, I hope it helps with what you're doing with some of the wolves. So I hope it 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 raises awareness to the point where where you've got people who listen to the show who then jump across and who are invested in your music. Yeah. Well, when there's music to bring out, <laughs> which uh, is happening. But man, this this has to be my like third or fourth attempt getting an album together, and sometimes I've I've watched it almost get to the point where it's been good and it's completely fall apart. So you know, I'm always nervous about it, but I think this won't come good. I hope it does. It deserves to. You're you're in a similar position to Paul Paul Alenda, whose stuff still hasn't come out. The unnamed horror stuff still. He he used to say like like you were doing. He used to send me across stuff, and I'd listen to it, and I'd message him back, say, "Come on, what's going on?" And but I just think he's busy with working and stuff. But it's just a matter of you know planets aligning, and then you've got these killer riffs, and it's it's all there musically. It's just whether or not the business side of it can come together for you. Now I take it, is it? Yeah, I think it's pretty much just that. I think it's just the case of um, you get everything recorded, you get everything mixed, mastered get some pictures taken, have something ready, and then you just go to people It's like, are you interested in this? It's like, you know, do you see this being viable? And at that point, yeah. And if no one does, then I'll just self-release it. And there's just says no PR at all. But it's, it doesn't remember to me, to me, to me it doesn't, it, it, it's no longer, I think, the, the do or die that it used to be. We go like you know this is this this has got to be it. This has got to be the kind of thing for me. This is more like kind of you know, this is where me and the rest of the guys in this band are at at this moment. And it'd be nice to take a snapshot, like a good picture, so that everyone can just listen to it and enjoy it. And you know, if 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 enough people enjoy it, cool. But if it just goes out there and like a couple of people enjoy it, also cool. I just like to play some fun gigs, have some music out there, and just basically you know have a good time doing it. Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely a glass ceiling too. I, I think that's um, if if you unless you've got a, a machine behind you that that pays a lot of money to game the algorithm, you, you're going to reach a couple of thousand people at best. That's just generally how how it, how it happens, and I've seen that firsthand. Okay, so unless you've got a label behind you who's paying quite a bit of money, because that's where a lot of the investment goes into promoting the band on social media. Oh, how else do you do it? There's not magazines and shit anymore. That's the only game in town is social media. So, uh, or, or playing shows, you know, or touring and playing shows. So, yeah, I mean, or, just- or getting one of your band members to die. Generally, that that's that's another oh. way. But um, yeah. I think we've drawn straws, and it looks like it might be me. Oh, but um, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> 
I, I, I think they decided that it, it was the best option. It's because it would generate the most publicity. You're the most famous member, so yeah, it makes sense. And, that, and then from that perspective, not that anybody wants that to happen, but you know that. Oh, I mean, I, I could do, I could do it like an Elvis, allegedly an Elvis, and I could just die. They can make up some story that I just basically, you know, just died in the toilet somewhere, and it was it was very very tragic. Yeah. And I can just go and live my life in, I don't know, somewhere sunny or something like that. And bring out the t-shirts, you know, the ones like the Cliff Burton yeah, ones, yeah. where you're looking whimsically yeah. off into the into the sunset. You know those ones. Yeah. Like there's this massive ray of light coming down, and my hands up there, guitar in the other hand, and it was like you know, it's like a, a tribute shirt. Oh my god, it's so true! And then I can ghost write the next album without anyone noting. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, risk on, like here we go. You know, you've got the the, the good looking guy playing guitar now. You know, yeah. Here so the songs James wrote on his deathbed. Here they are. This, these are songs written on his deathbed. You know. Well, deaf toilet. It doesn't really particularly matter which one you're actually going. Recorded it in the bathroom. There you go. Yeah, yeah that, that's the one way of doing it. It's like faking your own death for publicity. Um, Stranger things have happened. Yeah. yeah. The other one, the other ones you can basically, you know, you can something controversial like you bite the head off a fox, or I don't know, something that will just basically get a bunch of people up in arms about stuff, and then you can later say no, it actually didn't happen, but it doesn't really matter. Hmm. It's a couple of shocking things or something like that, or. You, there's ways, there's ways to do something completely unrelated to music. I'll get people to take and pay attention. But I do okay. think the dying one is the best one. Well, you're assured of immortality, then. Yeah, I mean, God Almighty, God help me for saying it, but I distinctly recall nobody really giving a shit about Chuck Schuldiner when he was alive. Okay, nowadays you got people walking around Varken, whacking with bloody whole back tattoos of Chuck and death and stuff. And I've spoken to the guys that were in the band about it, like Gene Hoagland and stuff, and they notice it too. And it's like, or, or Steve, Steve DiGiorgio in particular. And I don't think they find it that odd, but they're just like, yeah, back in the day, man, we just were playing music, and you know, a few hundred people would turn up these days, man. There's tattoos and shit everywhere, and most of these kids yeah. weren't even alive. <laughs> no, because it was going. Like they, they bought a sound of perseverance and stuff like that. Um, death metal at that point had become more niche than it had at the beginning of the nineties when there was that explosion. So it was like, like Death Left, Morbid Angel, a couple of other band, Cannibal Corpse, and stuff like that. And everyone else had kind of just I don't know, just wasn't as much going on as as much going on anymore. Hmm. And then I remember it's like yeah, he's that they were trying to do like a fundraiser for him and stuff like that because you know American healthcare is appalling. And then he was gone, and we're like going, "Oh man, that that really, really sucks." But yeah, you're right; it's no nowhere near like it is now, where he's kind of um, like everyone knows who Chuck Schuldiner and Death is in metal, mostly. If you're into that kind of thing, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it's but it's there's a I call it what it is. It's a death cull. So you get all of these people that I've literally, I've had people, they're not musicians, so I don't think they understand what they're saying. Cliff Burton as well. Yeah, that's what I was saying. The Cliff Burton thing, it's like, oh, you're a bass player and you're into metal. Oh, Cliff's the best. And oh, you got to agree, Cliff's the best, right? And you can see the, you know, that weird look they got in their eye. And I'm like, yeah, he's the best. It's all right. Slowly step away from the drunk person. And it's, uh, but they can't be, they can't be reasoned with. They, they've got, Cliff Burton was, he's the best musician ever and shut up. And it's like, whoa, whoa, okay, okay. If you've taken that view, that's that's cool. It's a perspective, but I don't really want to be here now. I'm going to go over there. So yeah, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's, yeah, and that's why a band member dying is the best publicity. 
<laughs> what it did for Metallica, I mean, God, you know, I'm not suggesting for a minute that they intentionally capitalised on it. So Peanut Gallery, just settle down, settle down. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that it developed a bit of an aura around the band that just got bigger and bigger over the years. And, like, if you say to any metal fan these days, who's Cliff? They'll say Burton. It's just yeah. a given. That's how big his legacy is, how big his aura is. And he was a he's a he's you know a serviceable bass player who played with a shitload of distortion and could write some pretty good stuff. But the the eulogies that I've re, I've, I've read even recently about Cliff are just nuts. They're they they put him on an almost it's it's idolizing somebody. It's a bit odd, to be frank. I don't idolise anybody. It's a, whether it's sports. I love you know football, rugby league, and rugby union, but I don't idolise anybody. You know what I mean? It's just you can't put anybody on such a pedestal that they're they're non-human anymore. No, you can't do that. It just it just doesn't work out very well, does it? We well, just appreciate them. We appreciate their body of work and go well down. There was more to come, and it would have been really cool. Like you know, got your Hendrixes, you got your. And it's, everyone has kind of died at like the height of their powers almost. Where you go, what what more would they have done? And I think the answer is probably about two or three more good albums after which they would have kind of lost their way and done a, some weird stuff for a while and then maybe come back 10, 15 years later with like, you know, the album that brought them back and people people are into them again. So it would have gone, their, their careers would all have gone the same project, trajectory. There's a word. Yeah, yeah that one. They all have the same trajectory as everybody else's music careers. Yeah. Like uh, breakthrough success, people love you, people get bored of you, you disappear into the wilderness for a while and you come back and people like you again. So true. So very true. Yeah. You, you get it. Uh, yeah. And and Ozzy's on record as saying this. Randy would have left after Diary of a Madman. So the, those yeah. two albums came out within, they were certainly recorded one after the other. They were released in you know very within a couple of months of each other too i think six or eight months of each other but that i think after that tour was done the tour that, that randy died on during yeah. that was it that was there was going to be another guitarist after then anyway because he was going to go back and become a guitar teacher or whatever he'd done his rock star thing and he that was it for him it wasn't a lifestyle he wanted to lead anymore and then to your point, maybe 10, 15 years later or what have you but then it could have been like a chris Degamo thing too in that in that people don't realise how much of a contribution he's made to Queenstrike, so there's therefore not that aura around his playing. So he just might have been one of the series of guitarists, like the first in a very long, or even worse, when I say even worse, I don't really know anything about Quiet Right. Just the He's just the ex-Quiet Right guy that was in Ozzy's band. Yeah. I bet that it would have been that. Exactly. So it's all, what are you going to do? So enough, there's, there's definitely, I think, um, a case of, if you die, you become something that transcends what you would have become. But I think that's, that that taps into people's like um, required to romanticize things and, you know, just have stories and heroes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they need some escapism. It all, to me, it all links into escapism and people's life is hard life is long we've got bills to pay taxes to pay you go through people go through breakups when they're still trying to figure out their life and you know your friends come and go and you have other disappointments like you don't get the job you want or maybe you don't pass the exam you studied really hard for and 
you need something that can lift you out of that. So I understand why people lean into these these icons and they're sort of like a permanent fixture throughout their life. I just, I've never personally done it. So I'm not saying I can't relate to it. I can understand it. I just would personally not be that way. I think there's so much, there's so much interesting things in reality. I don't need to sort of make anything up, if that makes sense. I don't need to lean into my imagination too heavily is what I'm saying. There you go. Right. Anyway, this is good chat. Well, there you have it. The first episode done and dusted of Talking Metal and some other shit featuring James McIlroy. Hope you enjoyed it. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. There'll be another one. I can feel it. So until next time, it's a goodbye for now.